Blog Talk Radio. It's time for Standing on My Soapbox, the daily rant and radio show. We talk about all of the good, bad, and the ugly of current events. Join your host, Scott Fullerton, and co-host, Craig Hurley. You, our listeners, are invited to call in and stand on our soapbox with us. Call 347-989-0126 between 4 and 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday through Friday. That's 347-989-0126. Now, here are your host and creator, Scott Fullerton, and co-host, Craig Hurley. Well, thanks as always, Katie. Welcome, everyone, to Standing on My Soapbox. It's Wednesday, March 20th, 2019. I'm your host, Scott Fullerton, and with me as always, just a couple seconds, my co-host, actor and writer, Mr. Craig Hurley. Over the next hour, we'll be giving you our take on the day's news, political, and pop culture headlines. But we really want you to call in and stand on my soapbox with us. Tell us what's on your mind today. Give us a call. Don't be shy. You'll hear the show while you're on hold. Just give us a call at 347-989-0126. That's 347-989-0126. Mr. Craig Hurley, how the heck are you? What's going on, dude? Nothing but a thing. Just just living the dream, you know? How are you, sir? I'm doing good. I have a 56-degree weather today. Went out and did a little grocery shopping, and I had a nice time with Nancy Grace last night. And yeah, how would all that go? It was really good. Um, it came in. It's called the Skeggs Lecture Series at our Youngstown State University. They do about six a year, and they're bringing some great guests. And they thought they were coming in for a moderated debate. And when they got there, they found out it wasn't going to be moderated. So they just threw something together last second and talked about legal aspects of the top news of the day. And they went into the college scandal. They went into Jesse Smollett. They went into R. Kelly. They yeah, we didn't even of- we didn't talk about Jesse. Um, and I, I'm not understanding what the not guilty plea is. Do you understand that at all? Well, um, from what they were saying last night, this guy that is their lawyer, and I forget his name now, Mark something or other, and he's a piece of work. Well, he's, he's done a lot of high-profile cases, and he's been on um, Nancy Grace and uh, uh, Dave, uh, Danny Abrams' show a couple of times. And I guess he's a pretty smart cookie, but he's pretty ruthless, and they think he's going to do pretty well for it. Um, there, it's kind of like I don't know if you and I talked about this, or I talked about it to someone else. Dan Abrams was saying they think they overplayed their hand with these sixteen counts, with also saying that these two brothers um, said that he was doing it for for more money. How are they going to prove that? And he thinks that they're going to. He says it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Because she's Nancy Grace says, well, he's guilty, <laughs> which she does for everybody pretty much. She said, he's guilty. He needs to go to jail. Uh, and she's a big advocate of the LGBT community. She just doesn't like this fake stuff, um, which she thinks it is right now. But Abrams thought that he has a good lawyer and uh, that they're pleading not guilty. And there's enough stuff on there that they may have overplayed their hand a bit with all, with these 16 counts and with releasing So if it would have been – if they would have really just focused on the full uh, the the false police report, 
than than instead of all the rest of the crap that is now loaded on him they may may have gotten him for that but because of all the other stuff they're probably going to fail in this right they still may get him on that one count, but adding this other stuff that I think is going to just add too much smoke and mirrors and will cast enough doubt that it may, he may get away with all of it. Is what Dan exactly suggestion is. So I thought it was interesting. It was interesting their take on all those things. On R. Kelly, they they think he's guilty as sin for just from so much stuff they've seen through the years. Um, so that was kind of fun. Uh, they talked about this. Uh, the, the college scandal thing and Dan Abrams was talking about degrees because since it is like a fraud or money transfer or anything like that, it all goes to the money. So when we were talking a couple uh, last week or whatever it was about like Felicity Huffman using $15,000 for. Yeah, but an it's an organization. Time. Did, did, did you, did you talk to him about that? It, it's an organization that they were involved in. Are, are they officers of said organization? Otherwise they're not guilty of anything except for giving monies to a college or to an organization that they wanted to get their kids into. That happens every single day. And it doesn't happen right, with just remember, rich people. You have to remember though, that there was three people that turned on this, that were getting prosecuted that went in and wiretapped them, telling them, no, this isn't necessarily legal to these people, and that's how they're catching them on them. So they're, they're catching them on I thought you weren't fraud. allowed to, like, record somebody without them knowing that you're recording them. I thought that was I illegal. Even, I, I honestly can't Without their consent. You, you can't use it in court. Well, I can't tell you if it was recorded or not. They can just go by the expert testimony for these guys going in and asking them. I don't know if it was actually recorded or if they're just using these people as witnesses against them, um, th- that's been done before. And there is certain say, like New York, you only need to have one party's permission to record someone. That could be the person to, to record it. You don't yeah. have to have the person to do it. Yeah, so it whether changes it's from state in to state. Court, that's a whole different thing too. I don't know. And I'm sure if it's if it's on a federal level, it doesn't matter. It, they record everybody, so and right, use it right. And so they think that, like, it's going to be a, a thing of degrees by all these people they have on there, how much they've spent. Like, Felicity Huffman should get less than Lori Laughlin because she spent 15000 opposed to her half million. Um, and Lori Laughlin did it for two kids. Felicity did it for one. She was going to do it for the second and changed her mind on the second one because they thought it was a little shady. So who knows? A little. It, it was fun to hear the legal opinions. Well, yeah, a little shady. (laughs) Just just getting in there and and having your kid, you know, claim to be on crew and knowing something about rowing and they don't know shit about rowing or crew, um, you know, just that. And then paying $500,000, that's a little nuts. That's a little shady. Just right there. Slapped his head when they talked about the photoshopping. (laughs) He was like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? But it was a great lecture series. It was nice. I got to meet him afterwards. So that was good. I was in the second row. I have friends that know them, or at least knows Nancy Grace. So I got in the second row on there, got to meet him. It was was a nice time. I had a good, they had a good turnout. I would say probably eh, a couple hundred. 300 to 500 people shut up in this nice auditorium that we have here. So it was a nice thing. It was nice to hear their perspective. Um, 
and, and it was fun. They have a good interactive. I guess they've done a show together before. They had a, I put a little uh, post on the pictures and everything. I got my pictures taken with them, and it was nice. It was a good time. It's just fun to hear cool. the legal opinions of Nancy Grace's. I didn't know her backstory as much. Like I said, she's a friend of a friend of mine. But I didn't know what her catalyst for all this murder stuff that she was involved with on her shows. Her fiance was murdered, and I didn't know that. And she went into that story a little bit. So that was kind of and and that's why about. she that's why she does what she does. That's why it's to make sure that. that people that are committing the murders um, actually get convicted. So, right. Yeah. Well, and I didn't know that part of her story. I thought that was very interesting. She went into that a little bit and very emotional. What'd she say about that? Why she's so passionate. She wasn't able to go into too many details on it. She was just talking about how it, they were engaged. He was murdered by a person. She had to sit through the way the courts almost got to end it up. Convicting the guy, but she said that if she wasn't standing by in every part of it, she wasn't a lawyer herself, she wouldn't known about it. And uh, she thanked God for her for education, and that's why she was so pissed off at this um, school scandal thing. She says, "Says I want to start off by telling my little son, Billy Bob Thornton, whatever his name was, um, said he's. I told him he has to apply for Eagle Scouts. He's been in Weeblos and Cub Scouts. He says, Mom, why do I have to go to Eagle Scouts? Says, because it looks good on a college application. Then I have these numbnet ladies that are If I would have known, I could have paid for it. I've made some good money over my lifetime. I could have made a lot of And she made a couple jokes of it. It was pretty good. But she's very passionate. I like her passion a lot. So it, it was a good talk. It was a, it was a good uh, lecture series. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Huh. Um. Uh, I, I don't know what I was about to say, uh, I, dude. Eagle Scouts, really? That looks good on a college resume. I guess it does because you have to do a public uh, community service project and everything else, and right. there's parts of it that are good. So I don't know. Okay. You said, I, 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 I don't mean to bash the Eagle Scouts, I but I, to Boy Scouts. I I was a Cub Scout and I was Weeblos. Um, but I didn't uh, go any further than that. I didn't even go into yeah, Boy Scouts. Yeah, that's part of the I made were those. So Eagle, Eagle so Scouts. Yeah. You have to do Boy Scout first, then you have to do a, a Eagle Scout. You have to do a community service project and do so many things. And I guess it looks good on college. What the heck? Um, back to that uh, 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 fiance is getting murdered or why Nancy Grace does what she does. Um, last week, and I and I don't like the... I don't like the anniversary. I don't like the term anniversary for somebody's death. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's another term I could be using, but people tend to use anniversary. Um, anniversaries always seem to be celebratory, um, or at least they should be. But um, uh, the anniversary of uh, it's a kid named Danny O'Connor who went to um, uh, the Chicago Academy for the Arts. Uh, he was murdered in 1989, and he was stabbed nine times on a street. Oh man, I can't remember. Downtown Chicago. Uh, it was on Diversity, and I uh, man, I'm tempted to say Western. Um, uh, he, this kid was, uh, not only an extremely talented actor, he was an extremely talented singer. He was also an extremely talented ballet dancer. 
um, and, and extremely agile, um, very, very, uh, like, and, and into, you know, self-defense and into martial arts as well, um, was the ball boy for the Chicago bears, um, when Walter Payton was playing and when they were Super oh, wow. Bowl champions. Yeah. Um, wow. he had just, uh, gotten into a relationship and, he was leaving. I think they only went on one date and he was leaving his his current girlfriend's uh, apartment and he was stabbed outside waiting for his, waiting for a taxi as at that time there wasn't oh, any wow. Uber and, and we didn't have any cell phones and there wasn't any of that. So, um, you know, uh, he was waiting for a taxi and got stabbed nine times and is still a cold case. And, and I just, you know, you were mentioning Nancy Grace and, and I wanted to talk about Danny O'Connor, um, last week because it was last week was the anniversary of his murder. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and, and you're talking about Nancy now. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I'd like to open that up, you know, as far as, uh, you know, there's a lot of things in this life that we all really should be paying attention to and, and solving. There's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of, you know, uh, and we never got to see the potential of what Danny was going to be. And right. we never we never got to see, you know, any of that come to fruition. And it's it just an extremely talented young man. And, and he graduated from the Academy, the Chicago Academy for the arts before I did. Um, he was ahead of me by a couple of years. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I think there's a lot of things that, cause we're all currently going at each other, you know, over stupid shit. And, uh, you know, this life is just way, way, way too short. And we have other things we really need to pay attention to and, and, and solutions that need to be implemented in order to actually live as a civilization. So, um, you know, and it, it just blows my mind that, I mean, that's 1989 and we're in 2019. So, right. you know, and he's still a cold case. It just stuff like that. It just really uh, gets to me when we're continuing to to argue with each other over just you know complete bullshit um, stuff like uh, the UN uh, uh, just having a vote over anti-Nazi um, uh, hate uh, either crimes or hate hate speech and and. Mm, the UN actually unanimous, not unanimous. It was like a hundred and 150. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was 150 countries, uh, to three. And, and then there were, excuse me, like 48 countries that were undecided or decided to abstain from voting, but it still got voted in, uh, for as far as the UN is concerned. Uh, and those three countries, one of those countries that said, no to the anti-Nazi uh, movement uh, or the anti-Nazi. I, I'm not exactly sure what they're trying. They're, they're tr- just trying to like put them down where they belong. 
So, you know, and I, and I understand that, that they're trying to do it in a tactful way. Um, and they're trying to show, you know, that across the world, we are, are, are not all in agreement on the way they practice. And, um, uh, the, one of the three countries was the United States and I'm a little that voted no, um, where, you know, 150 some odd countries did this, they said yes. And to getting rid of, uh, Nazi speech in their, in their, or fascist speech that those definition fascist has changed. That definition has changed a little bit. So can't really use fascism. Um, more authoritarian speech and the and it seems to really be coming from a a the, the hate speeches um all of them seem to be coming from a white supremacist nazi movement um because you know uh, uh, i mean there could be a little bit of hate speech coming from me but it's anti-nazi so i'm not sure what that exactly is um uh but the one of the it's just disappointing to me and 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 i understand it because it it is about free speech we we should let people say what they have to say but once you assault somebody with your speech with your verbiage and once you uh, have have violated a person in such a way calling them whatever name once their delicate sensibilities have gotten to the point where they want to punch you in the face for what you said, um, I, I think you cross the line of free speech. I, I think it's over at that point because now we're into assaulting. And I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, part of me is really disappointed that the United States didn't back this. Um, but the other part of me is saying, yeah, dude, it's about free speech. So and we have to be able, even the Nazis have to be able to say something about how they feel. And that's that's what expression is about. That's what free speech is about. So, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of torn on why they decided to to say no to this to this law. Yeah, it's interesting because that's what you got into that debate with all the college campuses. Should these people bring these people that do quote-unquote hate speech onto campus where there's almost always a riot or some kind of thing but it is speech um so you're right it's very hard to it's a it's a slippery slope and a hard line to draw because you want to enshrine free speech and make sure it stays that way for everyone but there's just some you how how do you define i think you had said it best when i said how does speech go into assault how does a free speech go into assault well, I think, that's a good yeah, line no, i think we have to i define. think what if you're you know if you're if you use the n-word against a black person then you violated your right to free speech your own you violated it yourself you did it yourself so you know right. i i feel like that's that's where the, the the line in the sand that invisible line of of what is free speech and what is assault that's where it is that's where it lands is if you are actually assaulting someone with your speech, well, it's over because you're about to get punched in the head. Right. Yeah, it's, um, God, it's such a slippery soap. And I, and I agree 100%, but it's like you said, where does, 
what, where do you define these words at? Does it stop at the N word and the F word for gays and all this other stuff? Where, where do you, where do you create this list of words that step over the line? It's just really hard in, in a country that's as free as ours where you want to celebrate that. But you also, like you said, you don't want to have verbal assaults on people. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know where to, I don't know how to draw the line and the best way to do it. But it's a serious consideration, especially the more that we have this divided country that's been stoked for the last couple of years now. And honestly, it's been divided for longer than that. Obama. Oh, no, it's or, been divided uh, the whole divided the whole time, point. dude. There's been a, right. a confederacy the entire time. And the word confederate means against democracy. It's straight up just that's its definition. So, you know, it's always been that way. And that's part of what makes America or the United States a a beautiful country. That's we have the right to say whatever it is we want to. I'm talking to you right now because I have the right to say whatever I want to over these airwaves in in the United States. I'm not sure if it's going into other countries. I mean, I know that that blog talk is international and I know that I have friends in Australia that are listening to me currently. And and so I know it is international. But do people in Russia hear us? You know, I I don't know. Do people do people in Afghanistan are they hearing us? Is it free over there for them to hear us? So I'm, I'm not sure. And so. I, you know, part of me, part of me feels like I said, I, I'm twisted on it. Like, like, yes, we should be able to have free speech all over the world. And the UN should not condemn um, one form of speech or another. But on the flip side of it, if you are, you know, perpetrating hate speech that that gets people so, you know, riled up to the point where they just want to punch you then then it, it's kind of your fault. That's where that line is. It's, you know, it's, it's your fault for perpetrating what you were saying and for saying what you were saying. No, definitely. I agree 100%. It's, it, is, it is a fine line. It's something that we need to talk about often because I think it is, it is a defining part of what the U.S. is about. I think you're right. Um, so we, we definitely have to kind of keep the conversation going and and things evolve and there's certain things like you said that, that go into where does it go into assault but i like the conversation that's for sure um i've uh, you know i've got i've got people that i'm i'm sorry scott go ahead no go ahead go ahead we'll finish this. I, no i, I interrupt you way 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 too no, much I was segue so, um, so finish on this topic then i'll segue so go ahead well it's not really it's kind of the same topic it's 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 like i haven't i've had people unfollow me on different forms of, of social media, but I haven't really unfollowed any of my friends who used to be, um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having a problem with my computer. I I haven't really unfollowed any of my friends that, um, are, are you there, dude? Yeah, I'm listening to you. You can, you can hear me. I can hear you. My computer is really messing up. Anyway, um, let's hope that it just stays. Uh, uh, <laughs> hopefully, I'm going to stay connected. If not, I'll call you back. Um, but uh, they, I'm just going to ignore it. Um, uh, I, I haven't unfollowed a, a lot. There's there's a couple of people that I blocked that, that I got angry with, and we were having conversations, and the conversation just went freaking out of control. 
So I was like, you know, to the point where we're threatening each other. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm done with the friendship. I'm done with everything. So forget it. And, and didn't need you as a friend in the first place. Um, so, (laughs) but I haven't, I, I, I have kept the majority of the people that believe in uh, another way or other thought processes. Um, and, and uh, like, I've kept a lot of people that actually voted for 45. I, I want their opinions. I need to see their opinions. And then at the same time, I'm presenting, you know, I've got friends that believe just the opposite and, and I want their opinions as well. Um, I think it's really, really, really important to pay attention to those people and and the people that have opposite opinions of you. Um, uh, We've had certain presidents in the United States that have thought exactly that, not our current one. Uh, a president like Lincoln, um, Abraham Lincoln, had a his cabinet was made up of people that actually disliked him. They would always give a, an opposing opinion to to how things should be done. And that's that's exactly what it, a cabinet of a presidency should be um, right. constantly questioning and going back and forth and, and trying to find a solution and negotiating any law. And, and, you know, so that not everybody's happy on either side of the, of whatever the issue is. Um, things like and every um, leader should uh, be surrounding uh, themselves with people smarter than them to give them that advice. Oh, anyway, absolutely. I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah. Smarter than them and also more informed on specific issues. So exactly. so that they so that they can actually give a a a, a, a correct uh, uh, I don't know reply to any question um, or you know correct statements to whatever the issues are. Um, now I might have lost you. Is there? Uh, my my point on this is that I, I've got friends that are that are bringing things up that are glaringly obvious that. Things that like the Democratic Party actually doesn't see and and things like uh, uh, Cortez, uh, what's her face, uh, Ortiz, I can't even, her whole name, what is her name? Just do AOC. It sounds too tricky. AOC, that's great. Now now she's the the AOC. Anyway, um, you can't, you can't be jumping on everybody to go green and then be driving around in a $80,000 Chevy Suburban. You cannot do that. Certain right. things like that. If you're going to represent green, well, you better be going green. You, she better be driving around in the, the freaking, I don't know, Tesla, whatever the hell, the, the one that's right. $110,000, a 900D. Yeah, you you got to you got to be driving around in something that's a little more green party than a, a Chevy Suburban. Chevy Suburban eats up so much gas and oil, it's stupid over its lifetime. So, uh, you know, you, you can't do that. And and it makes you look hypocritical. It makes her look hypocritical. So people on the one side or the other sides all all the way around are like, "No, we we don't like what you because you look like a hypocrite." So you're not, they're not going to listen to something that's an actual solution when you're looking like a hypocrite just on a daily basis, just by driving around in a Chevy Suburban. 
And I love Chevy Suburban, so don't get me wrong. Um, and also, <laughs> like I said before, I, no, I, I'm a Chevy dude. I, I, I've, I've driven Chevys. I've got a, a 78 Corvette. So, I, you know, I've got, I, I'm a Chevy guy. I, I currently drive an Equinox. I, I'm a Chevy dude. So, and I, I always have been. I've been a GM guy my whole life. And I, you know, that's, I, I just prefer them and, uh, and the horsepower and all of it, you know, I, I can't, I'm having a hard time switching, you know, to, to anything electric, even though the electric cars go to zero to 60 in 2.8 seconds, like a motorcycle. Can't wait. It'll be fun. But, um, still, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, I'm into the, the gas guzzling and, you know, the, the loud mufflers and, and all of that. So oh, yeah. I got Flowmasters on mine. I got straight pipes, still exhaust Flowmasters. That's the thing I noticed back here when I moved to Ohio is a lot of people, I mean, there's such a great work ethic back here in the Midwest again, but what a lot of people do is they, they, they're into these cars, dude. We have super nats and stuff all around. And that's what you all went along when the weather's so shitty. They just build these cars and refine their cars. And then come the first day of spring, we have people parked out at every, uh, they used to have the A and Ws and stuff, and now they find different places. You see all these great cars just parked out and hanging out and showing off their cars. They have some amazing vehicles out here in Northeast Ohio. People just spend all winter long getting nice and cherry, and then they go to all these little car shows all summer long, all up and down the main drags and the Kmart parking lots and things like that. It's very cool to watch. I love seeing those things. All right. Okay. Well, my I can't I can't see shit on my computer. Uh, my computer is frozen, so I, I'm surprised I'm still on the air. Uh, You're fine. I, so I, we can hear you. Okay. So we're good. Okay. Um, cool. I did. I told you I want to go to another topic. Something I just read today yeah. that something I've been watching on that has to do with freedoms a little bit. Um, Florida legislatures they had a big thing the other day. Florida passed last year during the 2018 elections. Um, They approved an amendment to the state's constitution called Amendment Voting Rights to Certain Former Felons After They Completed All Terms of Their Sentencing, Including Parole or Probation. Those who were convicted of murder or sexual offenses were not eligible to be restored. Anyway, they passed this thing um, to try to give people their rights back, to try and it's part of the social justice reforms we're seeing in this country. Well, of course, we know that it's normally the Republican learns from Stacey Abrams and everyone else that they're trying to do as much voter suppression as possible. So now Florida legislatures, the Republicans there, have advanced a bill on Tuesday that's expected to limit the number of felons who can vote by requiring them to pay back all court fees and fines before they can register. So this is after they've done their time, after they've done their parole, after they've done their sentence. And even if they've done a court-ordered, let's say they have to pay restitution of 10000 bucks just for the hell of it, but they've made a payment plan with the courts, and they're doing that so much per month because they're poor, um, they can't have their voting back until that restitution is paid in full. They have no fines or court fees in front of them before they can register. So wow. after the, the state votes to overturn their constitution to give these people a right to vote, and do some social justice because most of these are drug crimes and stupid crimes. Um, now the the Republicans yeah nonviolent nonviolent drug related crimes exactly which is all about money to limit that even more because they're trying. I mean they talk about not wanting voter suppression, but you see it all the time. 
and this has kind of stuck out to me. I saw this article today. I wanted to pass it along to everyone. So I thought well, it was also very they're 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 emptying out the prisons down there, and and the people who own the prisons don't like that because they make a like I don't know what the amount of money is. It's a shit ton of money on every single head that they have in there. So every single oh, person. Oh, they're privatizing all that now. Private, yeah, if it's private, private, and the majority of them now. are. Majority of prisons yeah. are privatized at this point. All right, well, we're 32 after the hour. Guys, we want to hear what you think about this stuff. Please give us a call, 347-989-0126. Give us a call here. We're going to take a quick break, uh, have a little coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, have a little cigarette break. We're going to listen to Matt Stern, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hopefully. Nice. <laughs> what are we listening to? Well, Dude, I've got a massive computer to... issue right this second. I've had, my computer's shut off on me three times during this show today. So I've yeah, had to reboot up. my computer three times on this. And it says the music is playing, but it's not. So we may not have a break today. I'm going to stop it and see if I can get another one to play. Um, this is a little crazy. Goodness gracious. Let me try another one here. Press another button. Try playing uh, Nick Mariko's thing from yesterday, although it's really short. It's only like 90 seconds. Well, I have the whole five-minute interview. I can play just part. I can play oh, yeah. part of it. Tracy no, go ahead. Play the whole interview again. Get it on here. Um, nothing's playing, my friend. Wow. Let's go ahead, and uh, I'm going to try to reboot my computer while you and I talk for a couple seconds. Uh, bring me okay. up another subject. Well, I'm going to reboot my computer and see oh, if I can well, get something to play I, here. Hey, no problem. You know me. I, I Dude, I've got like 15-minute <laughs> rants uh, in my head. i got four of them right now, so I can fill an hour, no problem. And now yeah, another yeah. segment of what hashtag what Craig meant to say. Statement. Oh, that cokehead is acting like more and more of an idiot every day. That dude was on Twitter all weekend. It was like 180 tweets. Clarification. Craig in no way meant to imply that the president is a cokehead. He meant to imply that the president is a diet you know, because he drinks a lot of Diet Coke. No, that's not true. That's just Craig's legal team taking a shot in the name of damage control, kind of like the crew of the Titanic sending up flares when half the damn boat was already in the ocean. What Craig meant to say is, Having had experience in his youth with cocaine and having known quite a few cocaine users that some, but not all, of the president's behavior is consistent with that of a cocaine user. Craig in no way meant to imply that he is certain that the president is a cocaine user. Craig, in fact, has, had, has no idea if that is true or not. Further, the president did not tweet 180 times over the weekend. He tweeted a little over 50 times. Clearly a perfectly reasonable number of tweets for anyone over a weekend <laughs> time, if you're a cokehead. But you don't have to be a cokehead to tweet over 50 times in a weekend. It would make better sense, but you don't have to be. And lastly, Craig would like to clarify that when he called the president an idiot... This has been another segment of Hashtag What Craig Meant to Say. We welcome comments to our editorial at 347-989-0126. That's 347-989-0126. I love it. You like that one? Yep. Hey, Ooh, I, I hear music. Working. I hear Mark's music. Working. Guys, we'll be back in three minutes, I think. 
be back in three minutes, guys. You're listening to Standing in My Soapbox right here on Left to Straight Radio. back that was matt stern with keep me awake and we are having technical difficulties but we're making it through uh goodness man it's a computer nightmare today um i went ahead and took you out craig just so you know 
because you stay having computer issues here. The ghosts are in the machine, boys and girls. The ghosts yep. are in the machine. Am I? Am I? Did you unmute me? If you want, and see what happens, and we'll see what happens. We can hear you great on the phone, though. You can. So we're good. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Sounds yeah. good. Uh, okay, I'll try to reboot this. I, no, the last time I did, it came up and it was still the same frozen. And it's giving me a, an alert, no less. I'm like, oh, great, I have a virus. That's awesome. Well, we'll let you reboot awesome. it for a second. Guys, let's talk about a little pop culture for a second um, because Craig and I neither know anything about this. But I thought it was fun just pop culture-wise. I guess the big Game of Thrones premiere is coming Um April 14th, so a mere two weeks away, three weeks away, is going to be the next season of HBO's Game of Thrones, which I have not seen because I don't have HBO. Uh, The final battle between four Westeros, between the living and the Night King and his undead army, whatever the hell that means. Uh, But I think the (laughs) the cool thing about it is that HBO's rolled out a new marketing campaign called For the Throne, where they have actually hid six thrones around the world for fans to find. And if you've seen Game of Thrones, wow. you see that little elaborate throne. They've hidden six of these around the world. And winners, did, you have to go to Facebook. They have a little Facebook post on it where they have all the characters talking about it. And if you find one, you get this huge, get to go to see Game of Thrones set or something like that. But that's a fun way to roll out a new season, especially a sixth season in there to hide six thrones around the world. And another thing they've done, which I like, is they've also teamed up with the American Red Cross for a blood drive campaign called Bleed for the Throne because they talk about the Red Throne and they've killed so many people and the blood something or other. I don't know. I haven't seen the damn thing. But I like that they're teaming up for a blood drive with the Red Cross. I like that they're doing a hiding these thrones all over the country. And if you go to Facebook Live or go to Facebook and follow Game of Thrones on Facebook, you will get clues to where these six thrones around the world are. So that's my plug into pop culture. I like the idea of it, but I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. You know yeah, I'm not. I have no. Nope, I haven't seen not one episode, and I have. There's multiple people in my life that are like, "What? <laughs> How have you not seen Game of Thrones?" And I just, you know, we're we're busy, man. We're busy. We're we're actually trying to create things like Game of Thrones. So oh, you. you know, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to do that. Um, but, and and really, there's so much because I can't really get into anything if i've missed the first season i just won't watch it no matter what right so for some reason right. i'm doing something the first couple of i never saw breaking bad because i couldn't see the first episodes of that oh i saw breaking a lot bad. of really good shit out there that uh, i saw breaking bad my I friends just it. like kill me but i just can't get into it if i miss the first episode i can't that's why netflix binging is good but i just don't have the time to binge all the way back six seasons earlier it just doesn't work right. for me so Right. But, yeah, because yeah, you got to take a couple of days. Got to take a couple of days out of your life in order to do stuff like that. So exactly. um, supposedly uh, there's so much content now on all of all of the different ways of, uh, you know, all of the different mediums for us to see it. Hulu, Netflix, HBO, right. Google, all of it, DirecTV, all of it, um, uh, that we could not, if we wanted to, watch everything we wanted to in our lifetime. 
So exactly. it, it, it's impossible to, to watch everything that you want to. There's so much, uh, uh, so many TV series and so many shows to watch now. Dude, I'm a huge fan of entertainment, and my DVR right now is setting at 72% full, and I have a terabyte yeah. on that damn thing. And I have wow. no time to watch mostly anything. It's just I don't have time to watch stuff, and when I'm working on the computer for stuff, I keep the news on in the background because I want to be able to pay attention to the shows that I like, so I won't play the shows that I want to see in the background while I'm doing computer stuff. And it's just, I, I have, I'm so far behind, but it's just, you're right. There's so much content out there. That it's yeah. Just there's ridiculous. so much content. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to keep up with, you know, just the shows that you know, like right now, you know, black mirror and, and stranger things is coming out. So, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up on those. Mirror on my watch list because you told me about it. So I have that on my watch. Uh, list. Go, binge go binge that watch that. Go binge watch that right that now. And, and when you're doing it, because the episodes are – some of them are longer and some of them are shorter. So some of them are like 45 minutes and other ones are like an hour and a half. So it depends on which episode you're watching. But do watch them in order, one through wherever they're at now. I think it's 12, okay. right? Um, uh, yeah, do watch them in, in order. Um, it might be one through 24. I, I'm not sure how many they did in the, in the two seasons. So, um, but they, it, 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 you have to watch them in order because there is a thread in, in the show. Um, okay. it's, it's a slight thread and you'll see, you'll see it happen, you know, episode to episode. So yeah, you, you, you'll, you'll, you'll get it then. Cause they, they'll like talk about things that happened in other episodes and, and, or they'll refer to them and, and different well, I put it on in, my in other episodes as for well. you. So I'm going to do that. And that Stranger Things, I guess, yeah, they dropped a, a preview. Um, pretty, they I dropped a preview for Stranger Things three today. I guess I've not seen yeah. it yet, but they did drop yeah. a preview for that. So that's going to be pretty cool. cool. Love but that. Yeah, show. I, I'm just kind of looking. I love to that show. I'm really excited. I didn't realize two of my favorite TV shows um, that were canceled that I was pissed off about I got picked up by Netflix for new seasons. I loved um, Lucifer on Fox. Uh, right. I thought it was a great fun show. And then uh, what's, uh, what's it called? The Kiefer Sutherland one is like West wing. Uh, what the hell was that? Called? Uh, I wow. I don't know. Oh, Oh, uh, uh, the, the, the whatchamacallit, the, the one dude that's left over. Um, right. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. The, uh, that, designated that, the, survivor. The, that's it. Thank you. Designated yeah. Yeah. Survivor. Designated survivor. One left yeah. over. That helped me there. Yeah. But both of those were canceled on regular network, and they're coming back to Netflix. I just found out about that the other day. So I am, like, over the moon on those two things. Um, And then I just found out – I was reading that, speaking of that, um, because we were talking about one day at a time the other day, what what a loss that was going to be with Netflix losing that. But one day at a time has one of the few clauses where it can go to – network tv but i guess what netflix did that i does that i didn't know before is they sign all these non-competes for like six to ten years for them to go on competing streaming outlets or cable shows so that's why you don't see any all these things that got canceled because i'm a huge superhero fan and they've canceled all these marvel shows like daredevil and iron fist and jessica jones and things like this and we can't see him around for six to ten years because 
they find these huge long non-disclosures or non-compete clauses for like six to ten years. So I didn't know Netflix did that. Wow. That's kind of shitty. No, I didn't. Shady. I didn't know either. Um, uh, it's it's always possible to renegotiate those contracts. So all they do is they right. get their lawyers involved and and they can renegotiate them. Um, and especially a clause like that, they're they're all just stipulations. And and so it may take a minute, you know, for the, for them to do that, but they can do that. Um, uh, but I, I think a lot of it, I, I just mentioned this yesterday, that Disney picked up uh, Fox, 20th Century Fox, and, and at $71.3 billion, <laughs> crazy money, um, and uh, that they now own Pixar, Marvel, and, and Fox. So it, there's a there's a whole bunch of you know if you're missing your superheroes and it's a Marvel thing then that, it's been a part of that transition. It's you know they're they're like grabbing all of these major companies and yeah, within 20th century the Fox 20th Century Fox, X-Men, which is a Marvel property. So it was like yep. but you couldn't they couldn't bring them together. Now they can bring all these under one tent. Now they can bring them all together. Yep. So I think you're seeing that and and you'll see. I mean, come on, it's Disney. You know, they, they got lawyers beyond lawyers. So you'll see them change those steps if they want to pick up one day at a time, if they want to pick up another show. They, they'll just right. go in and have it changed and then pick it up. So, you know, $71 billion. That's the only thing they had to do is would, like, release 22 sports net, sports stations they own. That's one thing they had to give up. So, so I guess they don't have a monopoly, even though they own half of the entertainment world now, it seems. Between them and Viacom, I don't know who's how these other people are competing. But, yeah, 71. Viacom, Viacom just, got, just is getting nailed for something. Viacom's getting nailed for something. I, I read it, and I don't know exactly what it was. Because, you, know, I, I, you know what my opinion is on Viacom. By the way, on Daylight Sucks, we were talking about that yesterday, and we were talking about Nick Mariko. Uh, within about two weeks of us, and this is years ago, this is like two years ago, um, within about two weeks of us releasing Daylight Sucks, the comic book, um, uh, Viacom's lawyers contacted me, and they're like copyright infringement on every which way. And there is not one witch in Daylight Sucks. There's a couple of gypsies that act like witches, but they're not witches. This storyline has nothing to do with witches. Absolutely nothing to do. So there was no copyright uh, infringement, and I had my lawyers go over all of this. And actually, for Nickelodeon and for Viacom International, Daylight Sucks would be a, a great show for them. And they could actually exactly. you know, repay and, or pay back the, the actors that they screwed in the first place by hiring them under a SAG franchise contract instead of a, a non-union contract. So um, – you know, it, 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 and they sent me a letter and a cease and desist. And I was like, you know, basically, you know, screw off. I have the, I have the right to, to ask any actor that I want to, to be in my project. And, uh, and, and just because I was using or, or happened to contact uh, uh, many members of their cast because I was friends with them. And I thought that they are all excellent talents and would be perfect in my project. I also contacted novella stars. I, I, I've got people like Guy Eckert that are, and he's a huge novella star, huge. And, and then I've got Adam, uh, I mean, I've got Adam uh, Bethke 
and it was a tremendously huge freaking novella star. And they had nothing, nothing to do with every which way. So I was, I was really like, you know, screw off, and this show would be great on your channel. So why don't you try to pick it up instead of, instead of going against me on this? Why? We have to develop this for TV. Why aren't we writing scripts for this? And I'm, I'll get all my money people behind it. Uh, got, I'm not allowed. I'm, I, I'm not supposed to say anything, but um, we are. We have a literary. There are scripts written already for for a TV show, um, and we have a literary agent named Scenic Rights uh, that is uh, pitching it uh, all over the place. And one of the places they pitched Daylight Sucks was Con. So um, we are, you know, it, it, we do have this rolling along as if it were, uh, uh, as if it could be a series. And I've got so much information in my head about vampires and about science that I, I, can, I can write more than 120 episodes. Because originally I wrote it as a, as a telenovela, and that's 120 episodes minimum. And and because I wanted to see it done in, in a bilingual way with, like I said, telenovela stars. Um, I mean, Katie Barberi, my fiance, telenovela star, uh, is plays one of the leads as well in, in Daylight Sucks. So or is right currently, as far as the comic book is under is is as far as the comic book is concerned, we draw her image. And as Ava Allenwick, she's the she's the lead vampire. So, um, you know, I, I, I originally wrote it as a telenovela. So um, I've, got, I've got more than 120 episodes. Dude, I could go 180. I, I got story after story, even after the, this story ends. This is just a chapter in the Alan Wick's life. It's only, you know, a couple of years worth of, of stuff that happens in their life. Or lives. Or on dead I lives. I love it. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> They're undead lives. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I I can't wait to see what happens with that. How is, um, you're talking about your record collection. How's your record collection? Are you getting all your stuff together for, to get that all uh, nice and pristine in your packaging and everything? Well, uh, yeah, yes and no. Um, I still got to, I got to go back over to Guitar Center. And, and by the way, they are um, really, really cool. Guitar Center is treating me very well um, on all of this stuff that, that I've been going after. Because uh, originally I, I went to purchase, you know, a microphone and some monitors and a, and a uh, processor for my, uh, um, for just doing voiceover work. And, and they were at the time, they're like, you're going to do a podcast. You're going to do a podcast. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't think I am. And then you're Scott. Hey, you want to do a podcast with me? So, um, <laughs> so, you know, now I've, not, and I've got all that equipment. So yeah. Um, except my computer is really screwing up today, but that's not their fault. Um, I'm going to have to take that thing to Best Buy. I, no, I told you, I go to the uh, guitar center out here in Boardman, Ohio all the time. They got some great, I mean, like you said, it's not just guitars, but they have a lot of great equipment for different things. Oh no, they have, yeah, they have equipment for everything. Every every instrument that you want to play, they have equipment for. So, yeah, I love guitar stuff. Very yeah. very cool. All right, I we only have about set, four minutes left here. What? Wow, dude! I know it goes so fast. Wow, that went really quick. I can't think of anything. Anybody else want to call really in? Three four seven nine eight nine zero one two six. Three four seven nine eight nine zero one two six. I know people are board. listening. 
I know they're oh, listening, I and they there. tell me they're that there. they're listening and that they're just not calling in because they're chicken. They're, they're chicken. just chicken. They're shy. They're shy boys, girl. <laughs> they're Come on, shy. get over that shyness. Chicken. We'll be quiet. We'll let you talk. We'll let you get a word in edgewise. Maybe it's oh, 10 no. words. They, what they, the heck? No, they, they, they've been listening to me. They know that I'm not going to let them talk at all. <laughs> they know that I'm going to stomp all over them. <laughs> Well, we have a good time here. We hope you guys will join in for us. We're gonna we're gonna bring some special guests in, in the next couple of weeks too. It's it's a it's a good time here on Standing on My Soapbox. There's room for everybody. Call on yep. it's a big soapbox, dude. It's big. We have room. All right, well, let's um, go ahead and finish wanted it up to tell everybody be careful today. Seems to be raining in certain areas, and then and like I said, you know, Nebraska's been completely inundated lately and so is Iowa. Um last super moon uh, tonight. What's the super moon gonna do to the rain and water? Uh, well as far as our tides, I don't know I don't know about the waters that are on land. Um uh but as far as our tides in the ocean it, it messes with those. So we should have like a king's tide down in uh down in Miami. That's usually the stuff that happens. Uh where um it you know like places like Hialeah, which is just uh, west of Miami, um, uh, they get completely flooded out. Uh, I mean, like just there's no way to drive, and their houses are flooded. So, um, yeah, people need to, you know, got to help each other out, when, especially when we're dealing with this. When we're dealing with all this stuff, and and our government is not helping, not in any way, and they won't. So you have to really help each other, uh, help your neighbor, love your neighbor. Like you're supposed to. That's that's in every single book, every single religious book out there. Love your neighbor, and um, and just treat each other with more respect. And, you know. There you go. Learn to live by. Just treat each other good. All right, guys. We'll be back here tomorrow. Uh, one more time. We'll be standing on my soapbox at one o'clock Pacific, four o'clock Eastern time. Give us a call. Tire hour three four seven nine eight nine zero one two six. Here's another Matt Stern. Bye bye. Peace. This time I won't idealize you. I won't throw my hands up over my head and cry. Still I know you are the one And I still taste you on my tongue And I would be fortunate to lie with you One more night I know it won't take much time now I just take one look inside your eyes and I'm flying What am I still doing here? I know you will soon disappear But I still hold on to spend time with you One more night
Welcome to The Randy Report. I'm Randy Slavacek, your host. I'm also the writer and editor of TheRandyReport.com, where you can find me every single day on the Internet reporting on the daily news cycle in terms of politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. In this week's headlines, the Equality Act is reintroduced in Congress. Donald Trump finally fills appointments to the Presidential Advisory Council on AIDS. Utah moves towards a more effective hate crimes law. Openly gay Mayor Pete Buttigieg qualifies for the first Democratic presidential debate. And out-recording artist Nico releases his new EP. All that and more on this episode of The Randy Report. With much fanfare, the Equality Act, which would add LGBT protections to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, was reintroduced in Congress this week. Sponsored by Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, Senate Bill 788 has 43 Democratic sponsors, two independent sponsors, and one Republican sponsor, Senator Susan Collins of Maine. Only one Democrat in the Senate did not sign on to the legislation. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Manchin didn't sponsor the legislation when it was introduced in 2017 either. And when marriage equality became the law of the land in 2015, his office only issued a tepid one-sentence statement urging people to abide by the law. Similarly, in the House of Representatives, the Equality Act has 239 co-sponsors, 237 Democrats, and two Republicans, Representative Brian K. Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania and Representative John Katko of New York. Representative Dan Lipinski of Illinois is the only lone Democrat who did not sign on for the bill. Lipinski has a squirrely history as a Democrat. He was the only Democrat to sponsor the First Amendment Defense Act, which seeks to legalize anti-LGBTQ discrimination nationwide. And he voted for the hateful Defense of Marriage Act. When the Equality Act was last introduced in the House in 2017, he voted against it. Hmm. The Equality Act adds LGBTQ protections to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended segregation in public places and prohibited employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, as well as the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which prohibited discrimination concerning the sale, rental, and financing of housing based on race, religion, national origin, or sex. Recent polling shows a supermajority of Americans support the Equality Act. Additionally, over 165 major American businesses have issued a statement of support for the Equality Act. In his State of the Union address this year, Donald Trump announced a new health initiative to end new HIV transmissions in the United States by the year 2030. The announcement, while certainly laudable, was a surprise to HIV-AIDS activists who haven't seen much to cheer for since Donald Trump took office. In June of 2017, for example, 
six members of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS resigned via a public op-ed in Newsweek saying Trump, quote, simply doesn't care about HIV. They pointed to Trump's failure to appoint a director of the White House Office of National AIDS Policy as just one example of his disinterest in the subject. The position continues to be vacant even today. Six months later, the president dismissed the remaining members of the council with no explanation. The council remained dormant for almost a year until December when Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar announced Carl Schmidt, Deputy Executive Director of the AIDS Institute, and John Weissman, Secretary of Health for the State of Washington, would be the new co-chairs. This week, the Health and Human Services Department added nine members to the council, saying they will play a critical role in the Trump administration's plan to eliminate HIV infections by 2030. The new members, who come from a wide range of professions, including science, activism, and the pharmaceutical industry, will provide recommendations and advice to HHS regarding programs and policies in treating and preventing HIV. The council met for the first time this week in Washington, D.C. Now, while this represents progress, there's also mixed news on the HIV-AIDS front in terms of funding. The president released his proposed budget for fiscal year 2020 this week, which includes $291 million for HIV-AIDS programs in the United States, but cuts over $1 billion from the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. PEPFAR, and $250 million from the Global Fund. PEPFAR is credited with saving over 16 million lives abroad since its launch in 2003 by President George W. Bush. The Global Fund is an international organization that focuses on ending epidemics like tuberculosis, malaria, and HIV. After the victim of an alleged gay bashing in Salt Lake City, Utah, caught his attacker punching him on video last month, state lawmakers found themselves under new pressure to update the state's hate crime statute. Upon the arrest of the suspect, Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill told the media he would not be attaching hate crime enhancements to the charges. At the time, he told the press, quote, I would have to show that the person involved in criminal behavior had the intent to deny a constitutionally protected right. It's so burdensome, we don't even go for it. Utah's hate crime laws apparently have never been utilized successfully in court. And so, last week the state Senate passed an updated version of the law by a vote of 18 to 11. And Tuesday night, Members of the House approved the legislation by a vote of 64 to 9. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, the new bill would allow judges to increase penalties for a crime if a defendant is convicted of targeting someone based on ancestry, disability, ethnicity, gender identity, national origin, race, religion, or sexual orientation. Additional classes that would be protected under the bill include age, familial status, homelessness, marital status, matriculation, military service, and status as a police officer or emergency responder to the list of protected classes. A person would first 
have to be convicted of a crime before additional penalties would apply. Governor Herbert has signaled he will sign the final version of the bill. Troy Williams, the executive director of Equality Utah, said the moment was nearly 20 years in the making. He told the Tribune, it was incredibly moving to have a body of conservative elected lawmakers vote for protections for LGBTQ individuals. An interesting development during the debate in the House, though, was the passage of an amendment that adds political expression to the list of categories that will be protected under the new law. State Representative Carrie Ann Lisenby of Clearfield became emotional as she shared that she had been the target of death threats after she recently made changes to a proposed bill that would have banned so-called conversion therapy for minors. I didn't like the changes myself. Lisenby's changes eventually gutted the bill and led to the main sponsor pulling his own legislation from consideration for now. The development not only angered LGBTQ activists, but past Facebook comments by Lisenby were brought to light in an Associated Press report where she questioned if living a quote-unquote homosexual lifestyle hmm, could lead people to suicide. Boo. As a result of her tearful testimony, the amendment to the hate crimes bill was passed. The bill now heads back to the state Senate to approve the changes to the bill where it's expected to pass and head to the governor's desk. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg announced on Saturday this week that his campaign had raised enough individual donors to guarantee a spot in the first Democratic Party debate of the 2020 presidential cycle. Buttigieg revealed in a tweet that his team had received more than 76,000 individual donations passing the 65,000 individual threshold set by the Democratic National Committee. Buttigieg is the first openly gay candidate for major political party's nomination for president. On Twitter, he shared with his followers, thanks to you, we hit the Democrats' 65,000 donor goal in order to be invited to the first debate, but we're going to need to raise a lot more money to compete. I know I can hold my own on the debate stage, and represent your values with honor and integrity, but I need to know we can build a strong organization too. During an appearance on The Late Late Show, the 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who served in the Navy during the war in Afghanistan, told Stephen Colbert that he is very conscious of the historic nature of his candidacy, but he hopes to work towards a world where who he loves isn't newsworthy at all. He told Colbert, quote, you know, it's really hard figuring out how to come out. I was mayor already. I'd kind of reached the point in life where I wanted to come out. I wanted to have a personal life. Inconveniently, I was in the middle of a re-election campaign, and I had just decided it was time to do it. We didn't know what the politics would be. I'm from a socially conservative community. But I just came out there, said who I was, and I wound up getting re-elected with 80% of the vote. You go, Mayor Pete. Ireland's openly gay Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, spoke out against homophobia right in front of notoriously anti-LGBTQ Vice President Mike Pence. At a formal presidential visit earlier this week, Varadkar and his partner, Matt Barrett, met with Pence at the Vice President's home in Washington, D.C. 
Varadkar thanked Pence for a really warm reception. However, when he was later asked by reporters how he felt being in such close proximity to members of President Trump's conservative administration, he did not hold back. He told the press, I stand here as the leader of my country, flawed and human, but judged by my political actions, not by my sexual orientation, my skin tone, gender, or religious beliefs. And I don't believe my country is the only country where this is possible. We are, after all, all God's children. And that's true of the U.S. as well. Land and home of the brave and the free, where the promise of America inspires boys and girls all over the world to dream big dreams. Here's hoping Pence takes a cue from Rodker's compassion and diplomacy. Out recording artist Nico released his first EP titled RMNC21 this week. The handsome singer-songwriter was born and raised in Milan, and his earliest musical endeavors began as creative collaborations with underground DJs. Along the way, he's been inspired by pop icons like Janet Jackson, George Michael, and Madonna. He's since worked in London, New York City, and Los Angeles crafting his own contemporary take on pop music with Euro influences and honing his own production skills. The result is a sensual soundscape that encompasses both the universal and the personal, love, sex, and complicated emotional bonds. In reviewing Nico's cover of Light My Fire, Billboard Pride contributor John Ali compared Nico's muscular vocals to a young George Michael, calling the recording a romantic and sensual vocal delivery. Nico says the new collection of songs, quote, tells a story of romance, love, and lust with pop melodies and dance beats. I tried to paint a picture based on my own experiences and fantasies. And that brings me to the end of this episode of The Randy Report. If you enjoy catching up on LGBTQ news in a quick podcast, I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't mind sharing The Randy Report with your friends. I like to think of this podcast as the 60 minutes of gay news, only shorter. And remember, you can find me every single day on the internet at therandyreport.com, where I cover the daily news cycle regarding politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. I'll close with Nico's terrific cover of Light My Fire. Remember, if we want to see our lives reflected in pop culture, we need to support. So if you hear something you like here on The Randy Report, head over to iTunes or Amazon and buy it. That's just $1.29 that helps artists create and reflect more of our lives. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next time. Oh, you know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be alive If I was to say to you We couldn't get much higher Come on baby, light my fire Come on baby, light my fire Try and set that eye on fire Yeah.
Welcome to The Randy Report. I'm Randy Slavacek, your host. I'm also the writer and editor of TheRandyReport.com, where you can find me every single day on the Internet reporting on the daily news cycle in terms of politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. As many people may know, one of the mission statements for The Randy Report is to support out artists, whether it be in the arena of television, film, music, or otherwise. And so today, I'm thrilled that I'm going to be speaking with one of my favorite indie artists, Eli Lieb, who recently released his new album, The Nights We Lived. Eli began his professional music career in New York City, where he started working on his songwriting and performing. He released a debut solo album in 2011 and was soon featured in Us Weekly, out in other national publications. Following the death of his father in 2012, though, Eli took a professional sabbatical and returned home to his home state of Iowa. During that time, Eli began recording covers of songs that were popular, and in doing so, began to develop a loyal fan base on YouTube. In 2013, a two-week trip to Los Angeles became a relocation. That began a series of collaborations with artists, writers, and producers, including Adam Lambert, Cheyenne Jackson, Hey Violet, Laura Morano, Forever in Your Mind, Crystal Bowersocks, and Stacy Jones. In July of 2013, Eli released what many consider his first official single, the power pop anthem Young Love. Music blog Idolator 
called it an instantly catchy, uplifting pop rock anthem that sounds like a cross between Katy Perry and Bruce Springsteen. Thanks to that strong pop hook and its message of living out and proud, the song and the music video struck a chord with people. Over the following months, Young Love garnered over 2 million YouTube views. In October of 2013, Eli was inspired to record a cover of Wrecking Ball after hearing it only once. Within two hours of posting it online, it went viral and was promoted in social media by singers Adam Lambert and Lucy Hale and celebrities like Rosie O'Donnell and Bob Harper. His cover of Wrecking Ball reached 1 million views in under a week, and in less than a year, the video had been viewed over 3 million times. In 2014, Eli was approached by a major ad agency to write an original song for Allstate Insurance's Out Holding Hands campaign. Eli wrote a song titled Safe in My Hands that accompanied an animated short film of the same name that was released in June 2014. The feeling and the message of the song got the attention of the producers of ABC Family's The Fosters, which chose to feature the song in the second season finale. Eli's newest album is an introspective collection of songs that lies right in the sweet spot of mainstream pop music. Eli says that he wrote and recorded all of the songs himself after moving away from Los Angeles. We'll get to his exit from L.A. in the interview. Eli called the album's titled track, The Nights We Lived, his most intimate that he's released yet. Eli says, it documents specific time periods in my life. I picked this song as the title track to the album because the whole record is an accumulation of experiences that have led to who and where I am today. I've been a fan of Eli's for years, having featured him on The Randy Report many times. I love mainstream pop music, and Eli knocks it out of the park every time. Let's take a listen to The Nights We Lived and then chat with the oh-so-talented Mr. Eli Lieb. Couldn't wait to feel the pavement beneath me Couldn't wait to act just like a fool I'm tripping home drunk with someone who is pretty Not going to sleep until the light hit the city I'm Waking up in the afternoon Cause those were the days to remember And those were the nights we lived Making our
Hi, this is Randy Slavacek. Hi. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Awesome. I wanted to talk to you about your new album, The Nights We Lived. I have been, I'm going to say this up front, I'm not just someone who picked up your album two hours ago and started listening and go, oh, he's really cool. I've followed you for years. I've been buying your music for years. I follow you on Twitter. I just think you're terrific. I am a big fan of what I consider mainstream pop music. I think there sometimes there's almost a snootiness about people not wanting to write a song that people can hum or get behind the lyrics because we connect to the lyrics. And I think your songs do all of that. And so I followed you for a long time because of those skills in your music, your lyric writing and your, your, your melodies and everything. So you have this new album, The Nights We Live. By the way, the title track is my favorite song, not that I should have a favorite, <laughs> but I do <laughs> like it a lot. Um, I understand you, that song alone, you've called the most intimate thing you've recorded. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to thank you for being such a longtime supporter of me. Um, that means a lot. Yeah, that song is definitely the most intimate thing I think that I've ever put out. And I didn't really intend to do that. I mean, none of the songs that I write, I really have a, like a severe intention for them. They just kind of come out. And this one just came out that way. I love that it touches on different touch points in your life, which brings it to the personal. You did note that one of the songs wasn't specifically about a specific thing. It was just something that came out of you. That was round and round, I think. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't something that I was really thinking about specifically, but I can definitely apply that song to many situations I've been in in my life. Mm -hmm. A lot of songs are about a very specific situation or person, and that one is more of a generalized thing, you know, that you have Mm -hmm. with people. (laughs) But a lot of times my songs, they really do just come out. When I look back at, if I listen to them and I look back at it, it's almost like I don't really remember writing it. Whatever comes out, I just let it be, and it'll very quickly start to manifest, and I'll understand what it's about. If it's about a specific person, a specific situation, or something that's more of just telling a story that anybody could relate to, and, you know. You know, it's interesting. I I talk to so many singer-songwriters, and music is such a therapy for so many people, especially when you're writing it, because it's a way of getting it out of you. And I do know that, that most of the songs that you write actually do come from specific moments or relationships that you, that you write, that you've had. The first track on the new album, Fall For You, almost echoes a sense of journey. You, you actually paraphrase a lyric, I think, to take us back. Am I thinking about the right song, Fall For yeah, You? Yeah, no. There's a specific journey reference in there. But I think it's brilliant because it tells us something and it takes us somewhere immediately within a span of like four notes or something. It's it's not a big reference, but anyone who knows the song or know where you're going. And you also start with such a great lyric because the lyric starts uh, something about, I remember when we met drunk outside that bar and and it's just a specific thing that, that people can relate to. Immediately they're in the place. Are you aware when you're writing of creating those moments or, or creating that connection to the listener? Or is it purely about your communication with yourself? It is purely about my own communication with myself. I really, that being said, I also want to make things that people will relate to and like, but I don't purposely have to do that. I find that if I'm just writing from my own life experience, we all kind of go through the same thing, you know? So if I'm, as, if I'm the most authentic I can be to myself, 
I think I will undoubtedly write stuff that people will relate to because my life is just like anybody else's. I mean, we all have our differences, but we all have the same experiences too. You know, we've all met somebody drunk at a bar unless <laughs> don't drink at all, but most people have met somebody drunk at a bar. I write songs and I somehow have managed to be able to put experience into a song. And so I just try to be as literal as I can with an experience with also making it work within the realms of song and rhyming. But it always seems to just work. Like I was saying earlier, it just kind of comes out of me. And then I look back at it and I don't really even understand how it was formed so well. (laughs) Sometimes when you get something out of you, it's like it's almost been, I don't want to say purged, but you've, you've transferred this thing out of you or something. So yeah. I totally relate to that. Can I ask a question? Because I do follow you. I follow all your music. I follow you on Twitter. You wrote the song Hollywood when you mm-hmm. left L.A. I think that was about 9, 11 months ago. And you were very open about it was, it was a bad experience for you. Can you share a bit about that? Because I, I feel like as a writer, but also as a fan of yours, I was wondering what it was that drove you out of L.A., I get the discontentment in the song, I get, and I lived in L.A., so I understand how it can be grating for most people. But would you mind sharing a little, what was it about L.A. that... that yeah, I mean, first of all, I do want to say that, like, I, I have a lot of friends that still live there that I care about, and I met great people there, and L.A. can, you know, it's, everybody has a different experience. For me, it was just the way of life and the way that people generally treated you and were treated, it just it's not any form of life that I want to live. I'm very uh, passionate about my career, but it's not like the be all of who I am. I really want to be happy in my life and have good personal connections with people and just live simply. And LA, I found it was just so like dog eat dog and every cliche you hear about it is true. It's very, very hard to find a genuine relationship and to trust a genuine relationship because everybody has some ulterior motive. And the second, like, if they think you're a shiny object, they're all over you. And then the second they see any kind of scuff in that shine, they're gone. And it's just not pleasant. (laughs) And in the entertainment industry, the idea of rest and treating yourself well does not exist. (laughs) You work basically 24 hours a day, even if you're sick. If there's an opportunity that comes, I mean, this happened to me so many times where I was totally sick, but an opportunity came up. And if I didn't do it, the opportunity was gone. You know, there's always somebody else wanting to jump into your spot and people aren't willing to wait. So it ran me down so hard to the point where I was very unhappy and just sick all the time and that I couldn't live like that. Well, I totally relate to where you come from with it. And I think that's why I wanted to ask the question, having moved out of L.A. myself, but I completely hear exa- everything you're saying about L.A. It is a dog-eat-dog kind of thing. And if you, if you aren't thrilled to be in that game, it, it's hard to stay in it. It really is. There are people that love it. There are people that absolutely do. Um, and I see them all the time. I did want to ask about the future gangster remixes, because... We know who Future Gangster is, and it's you, and you, you revisit your own songs, which is awesome. I love the Hollywood remix. It, it's like a whole new song, practically. I kind of looked at those as being just new productions of it rather than, like, you know, remix. And you always need a name for the remix, so 
a friend of mine just decided one day to start calling me that for no reason. And I liked it. And then I just like applied it to that, to those remixes. So now if I ever make some weird other version of a song of mine, I'll know how to name it. And actually the remix of Hollywood, if you had ever played that for me first, would, would sound exactly what I would think the song would be. Except I know the first version, which I like also. So What's really funny about first versions is what I have noticed being a musician and having people that listen to my music, no matter what the two versions are of a song, people always like the first version they hear better. Uh, yeah. The second yeah. version is better. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Not just with Hollywood, that's the case, but like, you know, you people, and you have this also in the music industry when you write songs and you're making a demo and you send it around, people get this thing they call demo-itis and you hear the demo of it and then you hear like the, a fully produced one and people are like, well, I kind of like the demo better because <laughs> it's just what you heard first. <laughs> right. I'm not like that. I constantly like what's newest. Like if I make music, I tend to hate what I do like a year later. I know a few songwriters like that. I know a few people. I know you, you did like a stripped down. Zeppelin is one of my favorite songs. And Thanks. Zeppelin is so what it needs to be. Now that you've told your story about hearing it first, I have to say, I know you did the stripped down version of Zeppelin. And I do like the first version better, but probably because I just know it. Well, the first version is better. I mean, that's, a, an, that's an exception. <laughs> um, to the remix rule. The little like stripped down version was something I just like made in my room in a day, you know? Zeppelin, um, the fully produced one was like a full LA production. Oh yeah, and it was awesome. Just a terrific, terrific song. So totally on my my pool playlist every weekend. Um, speaking of things you make, you record and produce this whole album. Is this the first time you produced a whole album on your own? Um, I mean, one that I would like to represent. <laughs> I've, I've done older music that if I, I cannot listen to at all, because it's just sort of me starting out and not knowing what I was doing. Um, but this is like the first thing that I've done since I think I've like had a career that's mm -hmm. just a hundred percent me. And I'm, that I'm very happy with like when somebody plays it, I feel like I can stay in the room and be like, yes, I made that. <laughs> Well, I have to tell you, you, I know you want an album that represents you, and every single track on the new album sounds like an Eli Lee song, and in great part because of the production. It's very, I'm not a music producer, but, but I'm a fan of pop music. It feels very full and very fat and very strong, and I was just listening to something yesterday, and you kick in with almost these arena drums near the end of something, like you're, you're playing Shea Stadium or something. It just sounds big. And I love it. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't put me off. It doesn't feel like heavy metal that makes me feel intimidated. It just feels like a song that you want to get up and dance to. And I'm putting a lot of those big drums in. I'm, I love 80s music so much. Ah, that's I, where like, it comes from. I've been trying to incorporate it more. You know, if I had my choice of, like, full career, I would have done the, like, 80s power ballad, like, Brian Adams. Sure. That's like, and also my voice. That's what my voice is. You know, so many voices now in current music is very R&B sounding, you know, like Nick Jonas, like that kind of Justin Bieber. But me, I'm like kind of an old school power anthem rock voice. Oh, and I love it. Two more questions. I'll let you go. Um, you released your first single, Young Love, in 2013. Five years later, you're out of L.A. As an independent music artist, do you think about the state of the industry? Do you feel like it's changing 
obviously it changes a lot year to year. Different things are happening in terms of the business side, but, but do you feel like it changes a lot? It, does it become more and more challenging for indie artists? I mean, it's changed so much, even just since I released Young Love. I think that it is becoming more challenging for indie artists who are starting out now because I feel like indie is kind of like mainstream now. Right. So it's almost like labeled artists are now going indie, which what then what are like real indie artists who like have no choice but to be indie, you know? Right. The internet has just got crazier. Social media is crazier. You know, when I started YouTube, I wasn't the first one by any means, but there were a lot less people doing it back then. So it was much easier to be seen. And now it's just like you get so lost in the mix and it's hard to keep the numbers up for sure. I will say you have like 46 million views on your YouTube channel, which is pretty fabulous. So that's yeah. wonderful. One more question, and this may be the most important question I ask you. Yanni or Laurel? Oh, it was Laurel, 100%. Totally. Okay, right? I'm being funny, but I love how, how these things kind of take over social media. And I, I noticed on Twitter you, you got involved and you were like <laughs> being very adamant it's Laurel. It is. I, mean, I, I hear it. I literally hear a very clear Laurel. I hear no form of Yanny. And I've actually talked to my other musician friends and they all hear Laurel too. And my theory with it and what people have said is that the Yanny is a very high pitched frequency and harmonic. Mm -hmm. I think musicians who've been in studios and on stages and have things in their ears a lot, like have, uh, have been exposed to the loud music, probably they have their higher frequencies not as well-defined anymore because they've kind of blown them out. So we gravitate towards the low-end low, low end stuff. Ah. Coral was. I love that you have a total answer for why people are hearing it. That's awesome. <laughs> I have to because it's the weirdest thing. I mean, I was in a room with three of my friends yesterday, and I played them it, and they're all like, it says, Yanny, I can't even hear Laurel. And I'm like, you're insane. I hear Laurel. So freaking clearly, and I can't even hear you. It was it, it totally messed with my brain all day. Oh my god, I love that, and that's why I love following people on social media because sometimes when people get on a rant, and I'll just well, not a you weren't on a rant, but you're being quite funny yesterday, asking for high fives, and it's Laurel. <laughs> It is, Laurel. I thought it, was, I thought it was very entertaining. Listen, I know you're on a tight schedule. Thank you so much for having the time to chat. Congratulations on the new album. As a fan, I appreciate it. Thanks. Cool. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Listen, I really do appreciate your music. I know when you're making it sometimes by yourself, you may not know how much people do, and I'm glad it's out there. I, I appreciate it. it. It's the thing that makes me keep on going. <laughs> Listen, have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Thank you, too. Bye. I want to remind you all that The Nights We Lived is available now at all digital download sites, and I really encourage everyone to go buy it now. I did. And here's the point. So often I hear folks from the LGBTQ community wonder why we don't have more big out artists in music, film, TV, or otherwise. Well, we do have great artists, and if we want more, we have to support. Listen, I'm not going to bring you some second-rate act, kids. Eli's awesome, so go get it. And that brings me to the end of this episode of The Randy Report. If you enjoy catching up on LGBTQ news in a quick podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would share The Randy Report with your friends. I like to think of this podcast as the 60 minutes of LGBTQ news, only shorter. And remember, 
You can find me every single day on the internet at therandyreport.com, where I cover the daily news cycle regarding politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. Since we discussed the song, I'm going to close this episode with Eli's song, Hollywood, from the new album, The Nights We Lived. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next time. Driving alone on the 405 to nowhere Stars in my eyes Stars in my eyes Talking to ghosts on the corner of mine and sunset Blood in their eyes Blood in their eyes Do you ever wonder what it's like to be happy?
Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Voices for Change 2.0, the only podcast that focuses on mental health while mixing in movies, music, books, sports, and pop culture. Here are your hosts, Rebecca and Joe Lombardo. Hey, good morning, and welcome to Voices for Change 2.0. Hey, y'all. How's, <laughs> how's it going? Thanks for tuning in this week, um, this middle of March. We're hoping it uh, warms up pretty soon, because um, yeah. I don't know about you, but we got snow today. Yeah, it's, it's rough. I looked outside, and I was just thoroughly depressed. You know, I, all I can say is what, and I, I can't stress this enough, the actual F. So it is what it is. Um, yeah. I'm. We were the wife and I were talking last night about what we were going to talk about today, and I had this idea pop into my head. Literally. Oh, like, we didn't. We didn't cover this idea. No, I'm we didn't. Scared. We didn't cover this idea. <laughs> this idea uh, popped into my head literally a couple of minutes before the show started. And uh, I, I thought, what better way to get an honest reaction out of somebody than to do it live on a show, being that we're not doing a show next week because next week no, is, we are. we're doing a show on your birthday? We are doing a show on my birthday. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I told you, but it's you, okay. You, you didn't. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I thought we were off. Oh, well. Did that ruin your your thing that you were going to say? Well, a little bit, yeah. I'm terribly sorry. Well, no, that's okay. Um, well, 17 years, ladies and gentlemen, 17 years. We uh, Well, here's here's the thing, then, is uh, you got a choice. I was going to spring on you what your birthday gift is. Oh, no, don't do that. So you want me to do it next yeah, Saturday? Because the, the actual day of it is always so miserable for me with for so many reasons, having the gift being get given to me on the actual date is is probably the way to go. All right, that's fine. Okay then. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry, those of you tuning in today that that won't be with us next week. Uh, you'll have to listen to the replay of the podcast to find out what Rebecca's surprise is. <laughs> it's a good one. Yes, we. Well, I decided to go ahead and because we had have to reschedule a couple of folks from the time that I was sick. So I decided that we would go ahead and do a show on on the 23rd, which is my 46th birthday. <laughs> um, oh, stop! It's painful. It's not it's painful. painful. It's horrible. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> How about Aquaman, huh? Yeah, yeah. Aquaman was pretty hip. We finally got to see it. Yeah, we uh, for some reason, and if if uh, the Creators of Amazon are listening. <laughs> what is up with you guys? Why not have it? I mean, we had to watch it on Vudu. Was not available on Amazon, where all of our other movies are that we buy. Yeah, that was goofy. And uh, I, I don't, I don't get it. Why let somebody else capitalize on, you know, all that cash? So yeah. Oh well. But it was a great flick. Yeah. Very well done. Uh, Jason Momoa is extremely entertaining yes and i was actually very impressed with amber heard i up till now i kind of was eh, wishy-washy on her but she actually did a really good job yeah she was rather so nicole kidman so, yeah nicole kidman kicked uh, copious amounts of booty yep and uh that was pretty cool mm-hmm. and uh 
you know, little little side note, if the guy that played Jason Momoa, Jason Momoa's dad, but it's hard to say, mm-hmm. uh, looked familiar, it's because he was also the guy that played Jango Fett in the Star Wars prequels. So how about that? Boba, Boba Fett's dad and Aquaman's dad. That's <laughs> that's quite the potent resume. <laughs> All right. So for today, we've got uh, another great show in store for you. Yep. Speaking we, of prolific people. Yes. He is a prolific advocate for mental health. And he also has a very popular blog and his own podcast. So, you know, we hope we can get him some, some additional listeners today, maybe some folks will jump over and and check his show out once we get that information to you. Mm -hmm. But um, we're thrilled to have him. He's a fantastic addition to the mental health community. So today we welcome the wonderful, the beautiful, the talented, the lovely Al Levine. All right. Hey, well, thank you for such a nice introduction. I'm really excited (laughs) to be here with you guys today. We are excited to have you, good sir. And you didn't even have to do your hair. Yep. <laughs> How about that? Exactly. <laughs> Not a lot of hair to be doing. Just wanted to make sure we were audio only, and I might have uh, taken, uh, you know, changed my white tee into a regular shirt. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, you, you, you and I are both follically challenged, so it's all good. <laughs> yep. Keeps the morning routine to a minimum. Yeah, well, I don't know about you. I, I shave my head because otherwise I look like a creeper. But um, uh, I'm the yeah, same it, way. It, yeah. So there's still that to deal with. He thinks he looks like BTK or something when his hair when out. When I grow in my hair, you know, and just the way it, it sits on my head and with the goatee and, and all that stuff, yeah, I kind of look like the BTK killer, which creeps me out. <laughs> That is funny. Yeah, I definitely have to do the shave or it uh, looks a bit silly as well. And not a lot of it actually grows back, but enough that I definitely have to shave it. And I like looked at my mom like she was nuts when she asked me just like two weeks ago, have you thought about growing your hair out? I was like, <laughs> really, mom? Uh, so, yeah, not a lot of uh, opportunities to actually grow much out. Yeah, yeah, and no, I'm with you on that. And it's funny because back in the day i i was a long hair i was uh, uh associated with the the burnout crowd the i was a metalhead still am a metalhead but had the long hair and it's funny because the whole time when i was a teenager and i had the long hair i had got from my parents cut your hair cut your hair so and then you shaved your head then i shaved my head because <laughs> it was a, migrating an and they they <laughs> swung completely the other way what'd you do so <laughs> Yeah, I can't win, but that's funny. All right, well, if you don't have any questions for us, Al, we're going to jump right into the questions that we have for you. Yeah, sounds good. Sweet. Okay, so uh, usually we start the show with this the same question every week, so let's throw that out at you. Uh, where does your mental health journey begin? All right, so... Boy, this could be a long answer, so you need to cut me off. But actually, I'll just keep no, this part. No, you're fine. Uh, okay, all right. So, uh, you know, I had no mental health concerns uh, that I was aware of until 2010. And in, I am a school administrator, and in 2010, 
uh, I was promoted to be the principal, so I shifted to a different school. I'm in a large school district, St. Paul Public Schools, and uh, I was placed in a different building. I didn't know any of the staff. I came into a, a building in a fairly stressful situation, I, I think, although any new principal's job is stressful, so I don't want to make it sound like mine was any more extreme than most. But I didn't know anybody. I had a small building, so no admin team. It was really just me. Came into a school that had budget deficit, so I immediately had to cut staff and uh, had several other challenges within the professional uh, side of my life. And then at the same time, I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and two newborns at home. So I started, uh, yeah, so, and, and, you know, I really never saw them. I was up as a brand-new principal. Uh, I was, you know, putting in the time. I was up and out of the house before anybody was awake. I was certainly home after dinner time and many times after bedtime. And Mm -hmm. the stress just piled up quickly, and uh, I realized something was going on. Just my whole body felt different, and... uh, started getting concerned, started having symptoms of depression, reached out to my brother, who is a family doctor, who also has been a huge supporter for me through my mental health challenges. And uh, he, you know, made it clear, like, I needed to get to a doctor. And in my doctor's office, I, it was the strangest thing. I I couldn't stop pacing. And he put me on some medication and uh, I, started to see a talk therapist and worked my way through it. And then uh, I eventually, after uh, two years uh, doing that, I asked asked for a voluntary demotion to an assistant principal, a role I was much more familiar with, uh, a lot less stress, although it comes with its share of stress as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, two years later, uh, or three years later, I'm sorry, three years to the day almost, my brother looked back at our emails and pointed out that it was almost to the day I went through a a major depression again, my second and last, hopefully last, but you never know, bout of major depression. And I always say that that second one makes makes my uh, first one feel like a walk in the park. Um, It got really, really bad, and I eventually uh, took some time off of work and checked myself into a partial hospitalization program. And uh, that really, uh, I'm happy to get into the details of that, but... It was really uh, suicidal thoughts uh, and and actually finally a plan, and I couldn't get it out of my head. I dreamt about it one night, and it scared me to the point that uh, I immediately asked my wife and sister to join me at my ni- next psychiatric appointment so that they could advocate for me. And I ended up, uh, yeah, taking work off and checking into a partial hospitalization program. Wow. Man, you've been through it. Yeah, that's for sure. Oh, thank, yeah, thank God. it was a, a it was a really deep dark place that uh, you know I I always say and it's so true I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy what I went through um, and that's why once I got healthy probably a couple of years after that episode I started uh, advocating around mental health and started my blog realized that I couldn't even public it was still a little private and that's why I created a Twitter account to drive traffic to my blog and. Uh, then eventually uh, created the podcast one year ago last September. So it's been going strong for about a year and a half, and I I focus strictly uh, interviews of men who have struggled with depression. Oh, cool. Okay. That's 
we're gonna yeah. we're gonna cover your your podcast uh, some more a little bit, a little bit later. Um, Sounds but, good. But uh, you know we're we're happy that you found the wherewithal to seek out the help that you got, um, and that you didn't act on the plan that you created for yourself. It's so hard when when you get that idea in your head and it sort of becomes almost an obsessive compulsive thing. You can't get it out of your head. I completely can connect with you on on that level, especially with my background of of suicide attempts and as well as cutting. You know, both of those things, uh, you form kind of what you're going to do and what's going to happen in your brain, and it's just like it's on repeat, like a record player going in over and over and over again. So I can I can really understand where you're coming from with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was very pervasive thoughts, and I would like work at pushing it outside of my head, and then you know, minutes or an hour later, it would be the exact same thought just coming, firing into my brain, and and I couldn't stop it. It was really really a strange, um, strange thing for me to experience because I had never experienced that uh, before. Yeah. Now, what were you diagnosed with? So, um, I was diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and major depression. Okay. And do you uh, and and you know it's it's really interesting. My first my first depressive episode clearly there was a reason behind it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. having having a five year old a three-year-old and two newborns in itself is stressful, but add on a new job with an incredible amount of responsibility, and it really makes sense. My second bout, I was in a different situation. Um, I had gotten a new principal and had a great first review, and we were really connecting, and things were going well, and then I just crashed hard and uh, and really don't have an explanation for that one. You know, even to this day, um, I'm not really sure why I fell into that depressive episode. Part of me wonders if I ever fully recovered from my uh, first episode, which was three years prior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Was there uh, anything, any indicators prior to 2010, you know, uh, through your through your childhood, through your teen years that kind of pointed to, you know, your, your crash being a, a possibility in the future? So looking back on it, I can think of things um, where I definitely had some anxiety. Uh, And it wasn't anything that was debilitating at all. And a lot of it I didn't even realize until looking back. So once I had my first um, depressive episode, and when I I remember being put on one particular medication, and they said one of the side effects is going to be anxiety is going to go through the roof for about Hmm. two days. You know, so be ready for that. It's just going to be a couple of days, and then it'll settle down. And I think it was really that experience where my anxiety was was through the roof, um, where I was really able to connect on a different level with what anxiety looks like and feels like, and I would be able to really understand it much better. That I could look back and point to situations, even as an adult, where it was clearly anxiety, and I never really attributed it to anything. Um, one example was I can really vividly remember uh, I refed hockey for a long, long time, and I was going to the high school meeting, and I was going to be running late. 
And I think most people would be like, bummer, I'm late. But I found myself going excessively high rates of speed in my car to try to get there on time. You know, and it was clearly a high level of anxiety that was that was creating this I, nowhere near a panic attack. I don't want to make it sound like that, but clearly I was like panicked that I needed to get there on time and I was going to be late. And I think a lot of guys would have been like, no big deal. I'll sneak into the back of the room. But, you know, I'll be 10, 15 minutes late. It's not a huge deal. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm actually very similar in that respects. Uh, you know, you run, especially you're running late for something and. You're thinking, oh, I gotta get there, I gotta get there, I gotta get there. Instead of thinking, well, no, if I take my time and I walk in the door a little bit late, at least I'll walk in the door. <laughs> you know. I'll yeah, be exactly. Alive, you know. And, and now, but, through my experiences, I have tools that I utilize um, to minimize and mitigate those situations. So, for example, breathing is something I really believe in, and breathing, like focused breathing, and focusing on your breath and slowing your breath down, that's a tool we have that we have with us 24 hours a day and we could tap into at any time. So I'll take, you know, a few deep breaths if I feel any kind of bit of anxiety coming up now, and I think that has been hugely helpful for me. You know, I, I, I couldn't help but, pardon my diversion here, but I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit when you said breathing is really important to you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right. I heard that breathing. in myself, yes. <laughs> breathing yeah. is important. If you want to remain a living being, breathe. Yeah, yeah, I'm a fan. I, I, I won't lie. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. It's a, it's a, it's a strong part of my everyday. You know, I, I, I utilize it most days. So. so again, it's the slowing down and the focusing on it. You know, it really brings me to the topic of mindfulness, right? People talk about being mindful, um, living a mindful life, living in the present moment, and I really believe strongly in it as well. And there's research that shows if your mind, that our minds wander a lot, and most of our mind wandering is negative thoughts. What you have to do, what you haven't done yet, important conversations that may be challenging that you need to engage in, things that work. And there's research that shows if you actually are mindful in the moment, even if it's a task that's not necessarily a, a happy task, such as driving in traffic in a, in a traffic jam, if you are mindful and pay attention to, to being in that traffic jam and focus on the car in front of you, focus on your hands on the wheel and really stay present, you will be more content than if you let your mind start wandering. Um, and I have kind of a funny topic blog post where I say uh, self-care in the shower and that it's not really what you think it is, but it's being mindful. <laughs> and I think in the shower is a really good place to focus because you have sounds you can listen to. There are um, the different sensations of water going over your body. Uh, and in addition to that, I think that's a common place where our minds do wander. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. People talk about mindfulness and I, uh, I have a real hard time with it. I do too. You know, my, just, my thoughts wander pervasively, you know, they just, they are all over the place all the time and trying to focus on the moment, living in the moment at the time. It's, it's hard, you know, um, you go to a movie or you go to a concert or you go to some sporting event or something and you want to sit there and enjoy it and focus on it. And you just, 
have this stream. You know, it's like it's like a ticker. Like like you're watching CNN, you got that ticker at the bottom, you know, and it just doesn't shut up. <laughs> and I really yeah, it is really strange. I mean, if you just you know? sit for two minutes, uh, it's really strange the different thoughts that come into your head randomly, and yeah. uh, you know, to, to really be mindful about a task you're involved in does take effort, and that's why I talk about practicing it in the shower. And I was really excited one day when I was in the shower, caught my mind wandering, and I actually stopped it. And I was like, whoa, all this practice really paid off. I just automatically shut that off and refocused on the shower. And I I love practicing mindfulness because if I'm playing a game with my kids, I want to really be there for them and with them. And it's very easy for my mind to start wondering about work, what I need to be doing. And then I'll catch myself and say, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy being with my kids and really being present with them. And uh, for me, it's it's been really big. That's yeah, good. that would be a really nice thing for us to be able to start practicing. I mean, I've tried it, and um, I haven't been successful at it so far. I, I got an audio book about it and just ended up falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it's it's just something that I, I happen to struggle with as well. And, but I think that it would, you know, we have, we have a very good relationship, but there are times when I feel like he's not uh, completely there with me, Mm -hmm. you know, and it would be nice if, if we could both dial in a little bit better. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. You know, it's, it's hard when you have a good relationship. It's even harder when you're, you're going through Rocky stuff. You know, I, and I, I feel for people that don't have, you know, a happy marriage and they go through that stuff because that's just one more thing that contributes to it is not being dialed in in the moment. Um, Al, yeah, I, I wanted to ask, um, when when you took the leave from work and uh, you had yourself hospitalized, how was that experience for you? Um, and the reason I'm asking is, you know, Back back in 2013, had to go through a hospitalization, and it was not a good uh, experience for her in any way, shape, or form. It was it was very very detrimental. And I'm just I want to compare and contrast see how how yours was. You know, was it super beneficial? Were there was there anything that you would have done different? Stuff like that. Yeah, so great question. Um, for me, it was. So before I took the time off to take a leave of absence and check myself into the partial hospitalization program, I took two weeks, 10 work days off, and and it, I always call it my unstructured time. And in hindsight, that was like the worst thing I could have done um, because in my mind it was like, okay, I'll take time off, I'll let some meds adjust, and then I'll be good and I'll go back to work. And those 10 days were really difficult for me. I found myself on the couch. Um, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't get off the couch. I would make really short lists of one to two things that I would do the next day. Like tomorrow I'm going to do one load of laundry or I'm going to clean one bathroom and that's it. And I couldn't do any of that. Um, I remember mm-hmm. telling my wife, hey, my, my psychologist said it's like a brain injury and I need to sleep. Well, one of my... Um, one symptom of my depression was not being able to sleep. So I would go up during those 10 days and try to take a three-hour nap and 
roll around for three hours not being able to sleep, but I felt safe behind the closed door of my bedroom, and nobody would bother me. I didn't have to be doing anything. I didn't have to figure out what to do. Um, and it was really, really tough. I wasn't going out of the house because, you know, God forbid I saw somebody from the community I work in and somebody would say, well, why aren't you at work? And how would I explain mm-hmm. that, right? A lot, of sh- a lot of shame going along with it. And yeah. uh, when, when I did try to go back to work, um, I, uh, it was still, again, not good. And once I had the, the plan for the suicide, I decided I need something more. So that's when I checked myself in and I was really, um, I was looking forward to having a plan of action for the time I was taking off. Going into the um, the intake meeting was a really odd situation for me. Like, it was really hard to believe that I was at a point that I needed to be in a hospital. And one of the things that uh, I did that I think was really helpful in hindsight was I asked my wife to go to the intake meeting with me. And, you know, you're sitting around about five or six medical professionals at an intake meeting. They're asking questions that I don't know if people would necessarily be honest if you're in the midst of a crisis, a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people would be honest and, you know, if they ask, are you self-medicating? You know, do people want to be honest to these people? I don't know. And then also... My depression, I was in such a horrible place, like it was impacting my cognition, my memory, my focus. And, you know, my wife was there to correct me, like for when I started what medication, when I took what days off. And it was really helpful to have her there. But it all felt very surreal to me. Uh, And at the same time, I was thankful to have a place to be. Um, And I had anxiety over leaving work. I had anxiety over what are people going to say when I go back. But it was certainly the right move for me. And it provided structure and a learning environment so that I could, I went in every day. So a partial hospitalization program, just so everybody knows, I would go in at about 9 a.m. It would end around 3.30 p.m. And then I was back at home in the evenings. And that went, that routine for three weeks. But it gave me structure it gave me learning, and I was very selfish during that time to focus exclusively on me and my needs because I knew I needed to get better for my family, for my work, and for me. Um, so I really put a lot of effort into the programming that they provided. And, you know, some of it was a little disappointing. Some of it I was wondering why certain people working there were even working with people. It didn't seem like a good fit for them. But every time I went into a session, I just said to myself, I'm going to listen, I'm going to be positive, and I'm going to give, I'm going to get some little nugget out of every piece of this because I need to get better. So I was able to look past any of the negative pieces I thought about the programming and focus on learning something and getting better. And for me, it provided the structure, the learning environment. It allowed me to connect with other people going through challenges with mental health. Um, so I always say it was an incredible kickstart to my recovery, but I also saw a therapist soon after and they said, you know, you go through a major depression like that, you are not going to have a full recovery for at least a year. And, uh, and I think that was accurate. You know, I think it was gradually getting better each day, uh, and making sure I also always say recovery from a depressive episode like that, it takes time and effort 
Um, and if you're in such a low place that you can't get off the couch, just to push yourself for like a walk around the block and to acknowledge the baby steps you're taking is really important. Um, it, the depression can be incredibly debilitating, and I don't know if the general population understands that, and that's part of what my advocacy is about, you know, helping people understand just how debilitating uh, it can be and that there are so many lives lost to mental illness, um, and I just I want to be a strong voice in the community so that people... Part of my podcast, one of my goals, I always say my goals are to educate those who know little about depression, to support those going through it, and also to chip away at the stigma. I think the more we hear and are talking about our stories, um, we provide hope and uh, learning opportunities for people. And it chips away just the sharing of our stories, hopefully helps minimize the stigma. Yeah. That was a long yeah, answer, I agree. Joe. <laughs> that was that was a good answer though. Yeah, that was good a good answer. answer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um we've got we, to we've uh, got to really break. quickly take our break here. So uh we will catch you folks on the other side of Joan Ryan on a clear day. The glow of your being 
welcome back to Voices for Change 2.0. Caught us off guard there. Sorry (laughs) about that. I'm Joe. She's Rebecca. And that that dude over there that we're talking to is the, uh, again, the wonderful, the lovely, the talented. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, there was a little dead spot there, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it happens. Live radio, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) So. Um, Everybody whose show that I go on that doesn't do their uh, their show live um, ask me how how do we do it live and. Sorry about that. Welcome back to Voices for Change 2.0, uh, the wonders of live radio. Uh, <laughs> good times. Good times, yeah. <laughs> so We were just talking about how people asking us, how do you do it live? Well, that's how well, we do it. Well, that's how we do it live, yeah, <laughs> by the seat of our pants. So uh, for Take those who missed patience, it, I think, right? that's right. Um, <laughs> for those who missed it, I'm Joe, she's Rebecca, and that wonderful Wonderful man over there is the the again the beautiful the lovely the talented Al Levine. I, geez, I, I, I drive her nuts with I that. I can't I can't even do that today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not going to argue with you about that. Yeah, please don't. Thanks. He he has not only I, Go ahead. I, I can see live uh, being a challenge in itself and uh, working with a spouse. That's mm-hmm. a, that's impressive. It, it really is a challenge, you know. But I I make the best of it. You oh know. my lord! <laughs> I carry you on my back. Oh, Seventeen years, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, me eighteen awesome. years in August. Yep. Hard to believe. Congratulations! That's awesome. Thank Thanks. you. Yeah. Especially, you know, we we feel pretty proud of it, especially with. You know, with my diagnosis of bipolar disorder, among other things, mm-hmm. you know, and and some of the the bumps in the road, so to speak, that uh, my health conditions have brought into the relationship. So, yeah, we're we're pretty proud of of us. Us, yeah. Yeah. So as you should be. Thanks. Thank you. Well, let's get back to you. Yeah. What made you decide to come forward and tell your story? So I think uh, the biggest piece, a couple of big pieces, actually. One was really, really never wanting anybody to be in such a deep, dark, low place as I was um, and to do whatever I could to help prevent that from happening to others. That was one big reason. And then uh, 
you know, throughout my own research and learning about depression and reading um, statistics actually uh, was shocking to me, and I couldn't believe that there wasn't more um, work and talk being done about suicides uh, because the amount of suicides in our world, actually, and in the U.S. is just outrageous, and the numbers are shocking to me. So I think we all need to be doing whatever we can to to work against that. Definitely. Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, um, we put out uh, a message on Twitter looking for questions for the show, and we did get a, a question for you, and I wanted to make sure to give a shout-out to uh, Erin Robinson, who is at Flossie Bunny. She asked a question of you. I think you, you might have seen it, but she wants to know how long your recovery journey was. Yeah, that's a great question. Every I think everybody's recovery is so different, right? So my yeah. first depressive episode, I didn't take any work off. I started taking medication, talk therapy, um, and just setting up appointments was uh, anxiety provoking for me and needing to take time off and what do I tell people but I think the first depression my wife might differ on this but I think my first depression was maybe a two to three month recovery probably closer to two where um, and again I, I was always able to function I was always able to get out of bed I was always able to get to work but I was certainly having symptoms like not eating um, I felt like I had a giant knot in my stomach, not sleeping, um, and really struggling with getting enough sleep and probably living on adrenaline. But my second episode um, of major depression, like I mentioned uh, earlier in the show, the, uh, one therapist told me after going through such a major depressive episode, expect a full recovery to take a full year at least. Um, mm -hmm. But that being said, you know, uh, I, I think, my depression that was impacting me in a really challenging negative way was probably four to six months. Um, but again, really advocating for myself and taking time off, uh, entering a partial hospitalization program was a, a great kickstart to my recovery and helped me learn some strategies and skills to continue to on my path to recovery. And even to this day, my last major depressive episode was 2013. Uh, I still go every other week to a men's support group for depression and anxiety. Um, I'm still on one medication. I'm still, you know, focused on my mental health and I'm pretty aware of it so that I catch myself if I ever feel like I'm slipping or, or need to do something like have a, uh, you know, exercise more, reach out to a friend, let them know how I'm feeling, um, ask a friend out for a coffee or a beer uh, or whatever I need to do. So I'm, I'm really focused on it. But I think that second episode was probably four to six months. And I think uh, people need to continue to have hope that they will get better uh, no matter how low they are. They need to know to reach out for help. And it's okay to reach out for help, and it's not a weakness. It shouldn't be looked frowned upon. Uh, but reaching out for help is is a, an important first step. Yeah, and it's great when you become self-aware, and you you're, you start to be able to see the signs uh, before it hits you full on. That's um, something that I'm 
you know, I would say I'm pretty good about foretelling what what's yeah. coming around the corner. Yeah, if she if she she can feel it hitting her, and she'll give me a heads up. Hey, I'm I'm feeling something coming on. I'm not, you know, I'm not in a great. I think I'm about to crash. Yeah, I'm not in a great state of mind, and it helps prepare me um, to to be there and be more attentive to her you know, and, and focused on her needs and, you know, whatever I can do to, to alleviate some of the burden of what she's going through. Right. So, you know. Hey, Al, um, would you please talk with us a bit about your blog, uh, what our listeners can expect to find there, stuff like that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so my blog is thedepressionfiles.com. And there's a there are several buttons at the top, and one of them is the blog. And my blog posts, uh, I have over 40 blog posts. Uh, my posts have kind of slowed down because I've put such a focus on my podcast, and the podcast, as you both know, is quite time-consuming. Um, yeah. But on my blog, I have over 40 posts. I've included a few different guest posts, uh, but it's all focused around mental health. It is all... Some of it is specific for men, but most of it is really general. Um, and I have posts that re- are uh, around suicide prevention and awareness. I have posts that talk about family members um, and how they can support uh, all different types of posts related to depression, recovery, suicide awareness and prevention, um, and so forth. And hopefully it's a great place for people to get different resources. I know one one man who tweeted me and said, hey, thank you so much. I brought one of your blog posts to my therapist, and we talked through it and how it could impact him. So I love um, hearing those stories about how my posts have helped people uh, or they find them as a great resource. So that's the, the blog, really, in a nutshell. Cool. Yeah, that's great. That's very cool. And and your your podcast, you want to talk about that a little bit too? Yes. Please. Yeah, absolutely. So my podcast, it's kind of funny how I started. Um, so I, I've been invited a few times to an incredible conference called um, Healthy Voices. It's actually put on by a pharmaceutical, so I was a little skeptical at first. But it's uh, they say it's their way of giving back to the community, uh, and they pay for every attendee to fly to the conference and to stay at the conference. Um, and they do want people to mention that it is put on by Janssen. So that's maybe one thing they get out of it, that it's a promotional piece. They're a division of Johnson & Johnson. They are actually the only uh, company who just recently was approved. A new depression, depression medication was approved by the FDA, and it's through Janssen. Um, it's a ketamine, esketamine, which is a derivative of ketamine, and it's a nasal spray. Um, and it, it could be, it could blow the door open on some other options for medications because it's not an SNRI, it's not an SSRI, it's something, it's a completely new classification. Um, and, you know, I think there are some questions around it still, but great to see it approved by the FDA. Hopefully people will be able to have it covered by insurance. It's really for people who have um, depression, uh, res- drug, I'm sorry, drug-resistant medic- um, or medication-resistant depression and or suicidal thoughts. Um, there are some possible side effects of hallucinations and disassociation, so they do require that you stay at a clinic when you get the treatment 
for I think like two hours under supervision, and then you're able to leave. So it could be big. But at any rate, at that conference, uh, I started uh, learning about different ways to advocate, and I really there was no session on podcasting. But I, for some reason, I learned about YouTube and everything else, and I became fascinated by this idea of podcasting. And I got a contact, and somebody connected me with Paul Gilmartin of the Mental Illness Happy Hour. And I reached out to him and said, hey, I'm thinking about a podcast. Any suggestions or ideas or tips? And he was fantastic. He sent me a bunch of advice. He allowed me to reach out to him for questions. I just – I really – um, appreciate and love Paul Gilmartin and how helpful he was. So I then, after getting some tips and advice, I went to Amazon and grabbed a couple of mics and some headphones, <laughs> some mic stands. And the way I started was in my basement, inviting men who I met through these support groups. And uh, it was funny because my kids would be up in the living room and they'd be, look at me and be like, Really, Dad? Are we having another strange man come into our house? (laughs) Yep, (laughs) we are. And, uh, you know, I have a coaching background as well, and there's this thing called a saboteur, and that's the negative talk that we all have in ourselves. So Mm -hmm. what I was a little nervous. The point of that is that I was nervous to really launch this whole project. So I continued to have men in my basement. I had about six interviews and was really nervous and hesitant to launch it was investigating the best way to launch it and so forth and always had an excuse not to because I was nervous and this means going public, this means getting uh, feedback that might not always be so positive. But Mm -hmm. in September, I realized it was World Suicide Prevention Day and I thought to myself, all right, I have one that's edited and ready to go. If this isn't the day to launch it, I don't know what is. So a year ago last September, on suicide, World Suicide Prevention Awareness Day, I launched it. Um, and then uh, I decided to start uh, looking into Skype and ways I could record shows rather than just in my basement so that I could open it up to people worldwide. And that's exactly what I did. And post an interview every other Sunday, so twice a month. I didn't want the pressure of weekly um, because I no. do still have my full job and full-time job, and I do still have my family. So uh, it's been fantastic. I interview men who have had struggles with depression, and it's really interesting. Uh, you know, I thought uh, that it was just going to be depression. So I reached out to a buddy of mine who has bipolar disorder, and I said, you know, this is really a de- show on depression. So I'm not sure if I could have you on as a guest. And I realized after my first five episodes or so, almost everybody on the show has something in addition to depression. For example, bipolar 1 disorder, bipolar 2 disorder. I've had guys on the show who have schizophrenia. I have had guys on the show with schizoaffective disorder. And the most beautiful piece of the show for me is the amount of learning I have done is like off the charts. I mean, I didn't really know anything about bipolar disorder, Um, the differences between bipolar 1 and bipolar 2, the differences between schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. And I have learned so much, and I hope that my listeners have too. Um, It's been a phenomenal experience for me, and and I hope people are getting something out of it as well. That's cool. I'm sure they are. Yeah, yeah, if if you're getting something out of it, I'm... Absolutely convinced that they are as well, you know, and that's a that's a really good feeling, 
number one. And number two, it's, you know, that's why we do it. You know, we, we want to bring attention, you know, mental illness and mental health, uh, it's, it's, uh, broad, I guess for lack of a better word, you know, it's a broad subject and it encompasses so many different things, you know, and it's no different than if you talk about say cancer, you know, there's so many different kinds of cancer that are out there and, you know, yeah, we get specific about them. You know, we talk about breast cancer or prostate cancer or skin cancer or lung cancer or, you know, leukemia, different things like that. And you have all those different causes and organizations that support those specific kinds of cancer. And then you look at, you know, mental illness and you've got, you know, bipolar disorder and DID and OCD and schizophrenia and just all these different subjects and you know there are the big ones that you hear about all the time but then there's the ones that you don't hear quite so much about and you know for us being able to shed light on all of them is a is a big thing you know we learn about stuff our listeners learn about stuff so to give our guests a, a platform that they might may not already have yeah to talk about what's going on with them and to help educate other people is, uh, it's really important. So, yeah. So it's good that you're doing the same thing out there and, uh, you know, good on you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you. You guys do amazing work and, uh, you guys have, uh, yeah, the work you guys have done is incredible and the awareness you're bringing to people is phenomenal and you've had uh, amazing guests on the show too. Well, thank, thank you so much. We appreciate that. So what do you think that we as a community need to do moving forward to combat stigma? Boy, that's a, a challenging question. The, um, the stigma, I believe the stigma is um, huge and I think people who brush off the stigma or talk about different things. Um, you know, I honor and respect everybody's opinions, but sometimes I hear people say, you know, it's not stigma, it's discrimination. And in my mind, they're right. There is certainly discrimination against people with mental illnesses. And if we eliminate the stigma, then I think we would eliminate a lot of the discri- discrimination. Um, mm-hmm. I think the best way, and, and the stigma is so damaging because it creates self-stigma and shame. Right. One of my blog posts talks about the connection between stigma and shame. And if there's such a stigma and you're hesitant to reach out for help, then, I mean, that speaks to some of the data that shows that many people live for, with depression for 10 years before seeking help. Um, but I think the more we talk about depression, the more we can educate people so that they understand depression doesn't mean you're sad. Depression isn't something that you can just snap out of or, or just uh, watch a funny movie and get some laughs. I mean, depression, for me, it was like an out-of-body experience. I mean, I went on for so long telling my wife and my brother and sister and my therapist, like, I just want to feel like myself. My entire body felt different. But so to educate people um, and to talk about people, and a big thing is sharing our stories. You know, and the more people see, like me, um, a person who 
has a great job and a family and 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 I can go through a major depression and have no necessarily no no reason that to point to for it to know that depression can hit anybody at any time right so i think there are a lot of negative stereotypes out there and i certainly had negative stereotypes myself one of my blog posts is um, major depression a humbling experience because it allowed me to really reflect on my own stereotypes and stigmas i had towards people with mental illness uh so you know, in my mind, I thought about the people I see on the street, living on the streets, and it was a really negative image. Uh, and then through mm-hmm. my research and having experienced it myself, I realized there are many leaders and CEOs and, you know, obviously the celebrities that are speaking out. Uh, so it can hit anybody at any time, and we need to be open about it. We need to talk about it more, and we need to make it, you know, as comfortable as we feel about talking about any other illness, such as people, nobody, there's no shame associated with having cancer or um, diabetes, right? We talk about it and we mm-hmm. understand it. Nobody nobody questions why somebody would take insulin. People question, right. why would somebody take a medication, up, you know? So we really need to, it, it's a lot. It's a big um it's a big challenge to work towards ending the stigma, and I need, think we need a lot more people doing, talking out about it and sharing their stories. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. You know, I mean, it, it, I'm reminded of back when Beck and I first got together. You know, she was kind of nervous to tell me what she dealt with early on. And then after we were married and going, you know, she'd be going through something, you know, she would be oh don't don't tell them I deal with this don't tell them I deal with that and you know now to be able to do that and not feel any shame about it it's like well yeah I have bipolar disorder or I have you know any any number of things right and being able to talk about it and you know at this point it's people are going to either warm and welcoming or they're going to look at you like you have a third eye in your forehead. And those are the ones that we need to reach. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the ones that need to learn and understand and not keep this medieval view of mental illness, you know? Right. Um, absolutely. Al. Al. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's next for you? What's next for me? Ooh, that's a big question. So a couple of uh, things I'm really pushing right now are, I mean, the the mental health work I do is really my passion. I mean, I still love my job as an administrator. I still love working with kids and teachers. Um, but right at this moment, I get my energy from the work around mental health advocacy. Um, so... I hope to continue my work uh, with the more public speaking. Uh, I was uh, invited. I'll be speaking with two other advocates um, at the Mental Health of America's conference, MHA, Mental Health America. Um, They have an annual conference in June in D.C., and I'll be speaking uh, there. So I'm looking forward to just, you know, doing much more advocacy work, continuing that work. 
I'm also sharing with people, I think there's an incredible need to have a better system of support for educators. So I work in a large urban district, and not to discount um, rural districts or suburban districts, they have their challenges as well. Our mm-hmm. school, uh, urban schools in particular, we're working with kids who are going in and out of complex trauma on a daily basis. And the everybody knows about the mental health needs of our students, which is outrageous, right? I mean, there are so yeah. many needs, and the and the system is pretty broken around supporting them. We need to do much better. And I, and people realize that at least and are talking about it. I don't think people are talking about the consequences and implications that dealing with children who are going in and out of complex trauma on a daily basis has on us, the educators. So I'm really pushing that. Mm-hmm. And I've had a on Twitter. Uh, I've tweeted out a survey for K through 12 educators in the U.S. Public educators in the U.S. Just a kind of a general sweeping survey. And what I'd like to do now is to take it to the next step and do um, a survey that's more credentialed, right, and go through the correct procedures so that I can really have evidence that we need more support. Um, and, I, th- I mean, I have many stories that I can share about um, challenges educators are going through with their own mental health from what they see and deal with on a regular basis. But most of it right now is anecdotal. My theory is that we need much more support, and the feedback and input I got from the survey really speaks to that. But again, it wasn't, I didn't go through any of the, and I want to do that. And once uh, I have evidence of the need, I'd like to share that with people who can make some big changes, superintendents in districts, um, you know, the Minnesota um, Department of Education, and uh, even the federal um, government to show that we need to really be supporting our educators better because we're surrounded by children with a lot of mental health needs and it's impacting us. And if if we aren't able to take care of ourselves, we can't take care of the kids. So that's really right. one of the big pushes I'm working towards right now. Cool. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, just really quickly, uh, we're about to the end of our show here. Um, we've gone over a little bit because we had that um, hiccup. slight hiccup <laughs> earlier. So uh, we wanted to give you the opportunity to get in some of this important information. So um, tell us once again where our guests can find you on social media, about your website, and your podcast. Sure. So the best place to find me is thedepressionfiles.com and there are buttons at the top for my blog, my podcast, for coaching, for public speaking. Um, So you can find it all there. Uh, If you want to, I'm on iTunes as well, The Depression Files. Um, If you, uh, you'll find me on Twitter and my handle is allevin18 so it's A-L-L-E-V-I-N 18 and there I tweet a lot um, of my links to my podcast episodes and my blog posts as well. Sweet. Okay. Very good. Yay. Well, thank you very much for being on with us today. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a great well, show. Like I said, it's been an honor for me. I've listened to your show. You guys are doing amazing work. 
So I just uh, really appreciate you having uh, me on the show. Well, we, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us, good sir. Yeah, stay on the line. Mm-hmm. And everybody, we will catch you next week. We have uh, another amazing guest in store. Mm-hmm. And uh, Plus, it'll be the birthday girl's day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a big day. <laughs> you know. So uh, here we are going to end the show with uh, Tara and Naomi, Help You Fly. Have a great day, everybody. Know how misery loves his company. Got a party gather around you.